Asha, is yes, Jim sir. here? Is the congressman here yet? He is. Uh, not yet, sir. He said he would arrive yes, he is. He would, he said he would arrive around 10, 10, 10, 15. All right, we'll get so, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, the building is going to get successful. Uh, yeah. It's quite a nice spread they have here. I haven't been here for years. Probably, I think when I was last, the CFR was somewhere else. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Do we have any audio here? Loud and clear? Well, thank you. So a couple of people woke up saying yes. We're loud and clear. Thank you for joining us. We want to thank everyone for joining us today. A particular thanks to the uh, Council on Foreign Relations for their hospitality. And uh, we appreciate uh, the opportunity to use this, uh, this venue to uh, engage in some, we think, very uh, appropriate, uh, not long overdue, but very appropriate discussions as uh, we continue our work with the biodefense panel. When the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense released our national blueprint for biodefense in 2015, we're pretty focused. We knew exactly what our priorities were, and uh, frankly, at the outset, with the appreciation for what the military had been doing and was doing in the area of biodefense, we didn't pay as much attention to them, not that we were ignoring them, but we really focused on some other agencies and some other responsibilities within the federal government. We recognized the important role played by the military. We issued but one recommendation to address the military-civilian interactions for biodefense, and we included DOD and various other recommendations where it was clear to us that several departments needed to take action together in this field. And I think everybody on this panel will tell you getting independent disparate agencies or groups in D.C. to collaborate, talk with one another, communicate, and work together, that's always a challenge, whether it's biodefense or anything else. We decided at that time to put more of our initial efforts toward improving the civilian side of the biodefense enterprise. We thought that the military was better prepared <coughs> at that time than its civilian counterparts, and while we didn't think they were doing everything they possibly could do, they were doing more, and we felt they were doing it more efficiently than just about anybody else. But we always intended to revisit and further examine the military's efforts to defend against biological attacks and the sorts of naturally occurring diseases that could bring this nation down. You're probably aware that a number of veterans serve on this panel, on our staff, myself included. Uh, some of us know what it is to ground the pound. Some of us who are in the Air Force know about air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Smart. Uh, same team, same fight. We're the uniform of the same country. We always feel that way. And we feel very strongly, as veterans, we need to do everything we can to make sure that today's warfighters have the tools they need to identify the biological threats before the attack occurs, to fulfill their arms control, counterproliferation, and nonproliferation missions, to detect accurately biological agents used against them, 
to protect themselves from biological attacks and to fight their way through biologically contaminated areas, at the same time maintaining their operational strength. A lot of attention is paid to bioterrorism and pandemics and the serious toll they could have on our civilian population, and rightly so. But it would be illogical, unrealistic, and improper to expect that biological weapons would never be used against our military or our nation, of which our military is such a significant part. So we're glad to have uh, Derek Dirk Maurer, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction. He'll be with us later today. We're going to talk about DOD's biodefense policies. We're interested in their priorities and their force protection requirements. And we look forward to hearing what they think are the most important biological priorities when it comes to countering biological WMD. Clearly, the department has made unparalleled investments in biological research and technology. We will engage with Dr. Chris Hassel, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Chemical and Biological Defense, about the department's biological research and development programs in partnership with civilian agencies. Get the drill. Partnership with DOD with civilian agencies, partnership DOD with other federal agencies. It's critically important to drill down and see what the nature of the collaboration is. It's no secret that our panel wants the Department of Homeland Security's BioWatch program to function as intended, or frankly, as this panel has said, we just want it to function at all. <laughs> uh, we don't think DHS can get it done without DOD's help. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Justin Sanchez. He's here from DARPA, our Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. Uh, they've been doing some very interesting things within that uh, arena to combat the biological threats of tomorrow with the investment and breakthrough technologies of today. So we're anxious to learn more, particularly about synthetic pathogens. I want to thank all of our federal and non-federal speakers for coming and spending their time with us today. And uh, before we move on with the program, it's always my great pleasure to introduce my friend, man for whom I have great admiration and respect, my co-chair, Senator Joe Lieberman. Senator. Well, thank you, Governor Tom. Uh, great to be uh, back with this group and proud of what we have been able to do in the time we've been uh, together. We have a new member. This is, this is a small uh, tight bipartisan uh, commission of six. The real brain power, as you can see, is down there. Uh, we depend on them. Uh, we all reached a, a blood agreement when we started that the only reason that, that we would each serve for life on this panel uh, uh, or until the funding for the panel ran out. <laughs> or unless you were called uh, to a higher uh, purpose. And uh, our the sixth member, Donna Shalala, uh, wonderfully got elected to uh, Congress last November. So we're, we'll miss her. Uh, we're very proud of her that she uh, has this opportunity in a, in a really extraordinary career of public service uh, to now uh, <laughs> be a freshman, a fresh woman <laughs> in uh, Congress. And uh, I consider her to be very young and uh, uh, vital. Uh, and uh, I, though we'll miss her, we, we know with confidence that she will not only do a great job in Congress generally, but she'll be an informed leader on questions related to biodefense. We're really fortunate to have, to take this place, and the competition for this position is probably 
as intense as for the Academy Awards <laughs> this year, Lisa. <laughs> but I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, really our top choice, Lisa Monaco, uh, is joining us as our sixth member now. Former Homeland Security and counterterrorism uh, advisor, uh, worked on Capitol Hill, worked uh, on in the Department of Justice, and uh, eventually, some might say inevitably, worked in the uh, White House. Uh, while serving as Homeland Security Advisor to President Obama, Lisa was deeply involved in our government's response to the Ebola crisis uh, in West Africa, which is the other part of our uh, focus. We define uh, biodefense to mean both defense against bioterrorist attack, but also against naturally occurring infectious disease uh, pandemics, which in their way, in their devastating way, can be even more deadly than a bioterrorist attack. So, Lisa, we're really excited to add your experience and your expertise to the panel, uh, and glad that you also help us to keep our bipartisan balance. <laughs> anyway, thank you. I'll, I'll get back to you in a minute. Um, I, I want to say just by way of general introduction to this morning, uh, since the panel released its uh, blueprint uh, for biodefense in 2015, which contained a number of recommendations, I'm really pleased that um, several of them have actually been implemented, and the one that's probably the most important as a baseline is that the Trump administration did produce, as required by law, uh, a, that we recommended a comprehensive national biodefense strategy that was produced last September. The strategy offers what I think is a good big first step uh, in getting federal biodefense efforts coordinated, as Governor Rich said, and on track. Though work obviously remains to be done. Our country still uh, needs a comprehensive and well-organized implementation process among federal partners with assigned timelines and responsibilities. And as always, leadership is going to be a key. So I look forward, as uh, Tom said, to discussing the role today that the Department of Defense uh, does and can have in implementing uh, the, their part of our proposed national, uh, now implemented national biodefense strategy. Coordination between military and civilian biodefense programs and activities is uh, critical in preventing uh, biological attacks and responding to them. Again, both the terrorist attacks and uh, infectious disease uh, outbreaks. Uh, I'm going to just mention a a few of the other uh, witnesses we have today that uh, Tom did not mention. One is Dr. Dan Gerstein, former uh, Deputy Undersecretary of Science and Technology at the Department of Homeland Security and former Principal Director for Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction within uh, the uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense. Dan's been here before. He's, uh, I'm surprised this panel is concerned as a recidivist. We're glad to uh, have him returning. Uh, we've benefited from your perspective, Dan, on the uh, Biological Weapons Convention and look forward to getting your take on uh, mil military biodefense considerations today. I'm also glad to welcome uh, Deborah Schnell, a former senior medical planner for weapons of mass destruction in the U.S. Army 
and former delegate to the NATO uh, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Medical Working Group. So with the governor, I thank all of our witnesses today for their participation, for their service, and look forward to their testimony. And now, um, Lisa, uh, <clears throat> it seems appropriate that we ask you if you have a few words you'd like to say on joining uh, our group. Thank you very much, uh, Senator, and thank you, Governor Ridge. I want to thank our co-chairs of the panel um, for their opening remarks and, and just say I am uh, tremendously honored and really delighted to be joining this bipartisan group of uh, some colleagues who I've worked with in the past and um, new colleagues that I'm excited to work with going forward. Um, these issues, as uh, Governor Ridge and, and uh, Senator Lieberman indicated, have been of tremendous interest and focus for me in my government career most recently at the White House. And so I'm really excited to continue uh, to uh, focus on these issues and to work with this panel. Uh, based on my prior experience, I think there's a number of lessons we can learn about governance of federal efforts uh, on the bio, on bio threats, both naturally occurring and man-made, on harnessing innovation, on working and partnering, and I think Governor Ridge made uh, the important emphasis on partnership uh, with the private sector, with state and local authorities, and uh, other stakeholders. So. I look forward to contributing to the work of the panel, and I think uh, today's lineup of participants is, a, is a, uh, a very important one, and this focus for today on uh, the Defense Department's important role and contributions to this effort uh, is a very good place to start, and I'm excited to roll up my sleeves and, and contribute to the panel. Thank you. Thanks. Anything else, Senator? Uh, nope. I don't know if any of the other uh, members of the panel want to offer some opening remarks. Ken? I'll, I'll just very briefly, if I may, um, <clears throat> just um, at the risk of tooting Lisa's horn um, <laughs> anymore here, I just want to welcome her on behalf of all of us, but particularly on behalf of myself. Lisa and I go back many years, decades actually. And have she looks a lot younger than you? <laughs> she, she, she is. She was about. Uh, I was about forty-two when we started working together twenty years ago. Um, and um, but she, um, she and I have had very similar careers in the Justice Department, um, going up through the uh, the White House, both had the same job in the White House, and have had very similar interests and passions throughout our, our careers. And I can't think of anybody better suited for this panel. Um, you know, she has proven herself throughout her career as being incredibly thoughtful about the issues facing our country, in particular the threats facing our country, um, fair in her assessment of the situation, um, and then very collegial, working well with everybody, and uh, just sort of relentlessly laser-focused on what is best for the country regardless of politics. Which, And I think that description of her fits the description of this panel. So I think it's an absolute perfect fit to have her as part of this group. and really look forward to working with her. Thanks, Ken. I dare say I don't think any of my colleagues can offer higher or better praise, <laughs> but if anybody wants to try, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Senator? I see that my uh, colleague, Senator uh, Congressman Langevin, has arrived, so I will forego what otherwise would have been brilliant opening remarks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to call our first uh, witness and a friend of the panels, uh, Congressman, would you care to join us? Thank you.
On behalf of, uh, on behalf of the panel, uh, we want to welcome our friend, uh, colleague, uh, Representative Jim Lankovan, and uh, he's kind enough to join us again. He's been uh, working with us since the uh, inception of this, this organization, this Blue Ribbon Panel. Or we call on him from time to time to give us his uh, perspective and his insights, and we're glad to welcome him back again to provide his perspective on the biological threat and its importance to the military. Uh, now, we have a pretty crack staff here, ladies and gentlemen, probably better than most people would uh, imagine. We're always looking for a connection between what the speaker's doing and biodefense. And let me tell you this. It seems that Rhode Island, hold on to your seats, <laughs> may have been way ahead of the country and the other states when it comes to biological attacks, particularly on transportation systems. Apparently, Rhode Island actually has a law on the books. Now, be careful when you tread up there. It is illegal to throw pickle juice on a trolley. So you need to understand that. The congressman has been a staunch leader and a champion for biodefense in Congress for well over a decade. And thanks in no small part to his engagement, we finally saw the release of the National Biodefense Strategy last September. If you also permit me a personal note of gratitude and thanks, I happen to chair the National Organization on Disability. Uh, if you've got a disability, we're for you and we want you to put you to work. It's out of New York City and I don't think we've got a better champion for NOD and the rights, civil rights, human rights of people with disabilities and the congressman. So just a, a personal thank you for all you do, not only for the panel, but for NOD and people with disabilities. Congressman, that certainly goes both ways. Thank yeah, you. Well, thank you. Now, just recently, Jim was named Chairman of the Intelligence, Emerging Threats, and Capabilities Subcommittee on the House Armed Services Committee. I think we should congratulate you on that appointment, but it's a lot of heavy lifting. They've given it to a good man. So we look forward to working with you and your staff in the coming Congress to further strengthen the national biodefense enterprise. So again, we are most grateful for your presence, anxious to uh, hear from you, <coughs> Going from your perspective, and then obviously my my uh, my colleagues will engage you in a conversation after your testimony. So thank you very much, Congressman. Sounds good, Governor. Thank you very much for the the introduction and the opportunity to join you here once again for the Blue Ribbon uh, panel. I want to thank you and uh, Senator Lieberman for your uh, extraordinary leadership and dedication to this topic, and uh, this uh, the, the members of the uh, the commission itself. Obviously, very distinguished. Uh, panel, and uh, I am grateful for your efforts, time and attention you're putting on this very important topic, hopefully so that we can get out ahead of the bad thing ever happening and uh, do everything we can uh, to uh, prevent it. We understand how real uh, these threats are, but uh, certainly a distinguished panel and uh, could not have better expertise, uh, people in the know of how best to craft this type of a strategy and how best to implement it going forward. So I thank you for that. Special hello to my, uh, uh, one of my former staffers, Asha George, uh, who uh, helped uh, launch my uh, foray into uh, biodefense. So thank you again, Asha, as well. Um, so I have some prepared remarks, and then I'd, I'd love to, uh, uh, to take uh, your questions. But again, my deep appreciation to all of you for your uh, commitment to this topic and for your uh, years of, years of uh, dedicated public service uh, to our nation. We are all grateful in, in, in your death. 
So, uh, Chairman Ridge, uh, uh, Chairman Lieberman, I want to thank you for having me back to testify before you once again. Uh, I've been a big fan of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel uh, on Biodefense since its inception, and I'm honored to be with you again here today. Biodefense <laughs> continues to be an area of focus uh, for the subcommittee on intelligence and emerging threats and capabilities. In my role as chairman of IETC, I will continue to evaluate uh, and elevate the, uh, the, the conversation surrounding this issue and promote sensible, robust national biodefense policies wherever possible. As you know, many state and non-state actors seek to develop, proliferate, acquire, and use weapons of mass uh, destruction against our service members and, and allies and against innocent civilians, both, uh, in, against innocent civilians uh, both overseas and here at home. Uh, most are familiar with the fact uh, that Syrian pro-regime forces and ISIS consider the use of chemical weapons on civilian populations as advantageous to achieving tactical and strategic objectives. And uh, while less prevalent uh, in, the, uh, in the news, emerging capabilities in biotechnology may allow individuals with nefarious intent to produce biological agents uh, at a scope and scale not yet encountered. We must also consider the risk uh, of, of countries without legal or ethical uh, restrictions using advanced technologies like CRISPR to edit genes or conduct targeted assassinations. As we saw with the poisoning of the, uh, the screenpals, uh, the, uh, the, the motive is clearly uh, there uh, already with respect uh, to uh, the use of, of chemical weapons. The Department of Defense has taken some initial steps uh, towards uh, viable risk mitigation and uh, innovative solutions since it's, uh, it, it released its strategy for uh, CWMD in 2014. Uh, in uh, 2017, Special Operations Command uh, was designated uh, the coordinating authority uh, for uh, CWMD. Since that time, the command has been uh, leveraging best practices from its traditional missions uh, and lessons learned in its role as, uh, as the CA for uh, countering violent extremism and, re and, uh, and to, uh, to reinvigorate uh, and uh, integrate, uh, integrate CWMD awareness, planning, capacity, and capability across DOD uh, and uh, with the interagency. The administration uh, has also released the first ever national biodefense strategy, a requirement that I uh, work to include in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017. Uh, without uh, thinking about a strategy, we risk flying blind, or at best, working in silos, and I'm pleased that the, uh, this document represents a coordinated effort between outside experts and the interagency to develop metrics for success, thereby improving uh, our oversight capabilities. So biodefense uh, is a uniquely challenging field. As the work of this panel has highlighted, uh, complex lines of communication, the necessity of uh, responses both from civil government and the private sector, uh, unlikelihood uh, of an attack warning, difficulty in crafting uh, countermeasures, and so much more. Most importantly, uh, biological agents, once released, know no boundaries. So those in this room clearly understand the breadth and the enterprise uh, that uh, uh, efficiencies will, uh, and that efficiencies will be found uh, with improved integration across the various stakeholders. Uh, outside of DOD's chemical and biological defense program, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, Agriculture, Homeland Security, and the Food and Drug Administration each have a role and each has uh, their own specialties, capabilities, and responsibilities in addressing bio threats 
preparedness uh, and, and response. Moreover, uh, given the, uh, the difficulty and, and uh, time requirements of developing effective countermeasures uh, for biological weapons, we recognize the critical role of the intelligence community in identifying potential threats. Obviously, we all recognize that good intelligence will always be the, uh, the pointy tip of the spear. While some fragmentation um, uh, may be helpful, uh, biosurveillance and countermeasures are certainly not uh, the same functions. A lack of holistic integration can lead to duplicative efforts or worse, capability gaps. So any robust biodefense strategy implementation plan will require a whole of government approach to drive investment and buy-in across the full spectrum of biodefense activities. Prevention, deterrence, preparedness, surveillance, and detection, response, attribution, recovery, and mitigation. So solutions will also require long-term investment in science and technology, which can provide better capabilities to our warfighters and our law enforcement professionals. We cannot allow these, uh, these uh, uh, budgets to decrease and are remain committed to protecting and enhancing those efforts. Furthermore, uh, I've long been an advocate for cybersecurity uh, and believe that it must uh, uh, be a key component of our nation's strategies going forward. I was pleased to see that this, uh, this panel included recommendations pertaining to the, uh, the management of cyber threats uh, to pathogen and biology uh, information and will continue to stress the importance of implementing this recommendation across the whole of government. So my subcommittee uh, evaluates unique and dangerous uh, threats posed by WMD regularly. And we understand how critical it is to have a coherent common sense strategy in place. Uh, this is why IETC has uh, stepped up oversight uh, of the, the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. Uh, ISIS as freedom of movement across large swaths of the, the Middle East near our, our regional partners like Jordan and where our, our troops are stationed. Improving our foreign uh, partners' capability to secure and dispose of WMD materials is, the best, uh, is in the best interest of our troops, our allies, and innocent civilians, and ultimately the homeland. There can be no doubt uh, that there is much work to be done uh, to strengthen CWMD policy programs uh, and preparedness. Today's headlines outline how real, chemical, uh, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats are and how widespread their impact can be. These threats, uh, man-made or otherwise, uh, include ISIS's aspirations to acquire and use chemical weapons, North Korea's provocative uh, missile tests and development, and the global impact of diseases like Ebola. So we must continue to push uh, this dialogue forward, not just in the uh, defense community, but also in the halls of Congress as well. I believe that my colleagues uh, understand the, uh, the threats that we face today better than they did uh, 10 years ago. But it is on us to further those discussions within Congress, ask for briefings from the defense and intelligence communities, and stay on top of this threat. Uh, evaluate and debate the guidance and advice put forward by experts such as yourselves here on this panel, and provide the resources necessary to keep our nation out of harm's way. So that's uh, a, 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 uh, just a brief overview uh, from my vantage point uh, and um, uh, so much more uh, involved in this topic, but I want to thank you again for inviting me to participate uh, in the panel and for your dedication to this critical issue. Uh, I, I deeply admire the work that you are doing. The, it's a great contribution to moving our nation to a place where we will be safer and more secure, and uh, we are indebted for your, your efforts. 
So with that, uh, again, thank you for having me here today, and I would be glad to take your questions. Do you want to start? Care to start? Or the hood? Well, thank you uh, very much, uh, Congressman. A couple of questions, and I'll probably get back at you. I don't want to dominate the, the uh, do you anticipate, as a subcommittee chair, uh, in the next, uh, in the near future, being briefed probably in private session by the intelligence community on emerging bio threats? Uh, have I had that briefing. That we haven't set such a briefing up, but uh, surely that will be in the in the works. Whether it's on uh, armed services where I sit and, and chair the subcommittee, or on the uh, the homeland security. Okay. I noticed. Uh, and I was actually wondering if this was your initiative. It sounded like it's something that you would do, uh, being the forward-leaning person that you are. There was an article on North Korea's bioweapons program. Everybody's worried about their, uh, their nuclear capability, but it said the Comptroller General of the United States, after request from the Arm Arm House Armed Services Committee, is currently conducting an evaluation of military preparedness for germ attacks. As someone observed, if you're a country that feels generally outclassed in conventional weapons, and this is across the board, uh, a lethal microbe such as anthrax might seem like a good way to create an outsized amount of damage. Um, do you have any idea when you'll, uh, you'll receive that uh, evaluation of military preparedness to deal? I mean, we know some of our troops in certain areas have been vaccinated for smallpox and anthrax and things of that sort. Do you have any, any time frame there? Uh, I don't require, uh, recall when the, uh, the requirement was supposed to be uh, reported back to Congress, but it's something that we will, we will follow up, and I believe it's going to be within the, uh, the year, if I, if I recall correctly. Uh, but that's something that we, we want to make sure that our, our troops are going to be adequately prepared and, and protected, and, uh, and so that's something that we'll be following up on. I appreciate that. One, just one final note or request. We know how effective DARPA is and all the extraordinary work they do, and we're going to have uh, some testimony from uh, within that or within that organization later today. I guess my hope, as a member of the panel, and I do think I could speak uh, for members of the panel completely. To the extent that DARPA, without conveying any top military secrets, can begin sharing some of the research with other federal agencies or in the civilian sector so we can more effectively and more expeditiously uh, enhance our uh, defense for bioweapons, I just hope you just plant that seed and have an opportunity to engage DARPA on that very issue, uh, encourage them to do so. And uh, I think it's critically important. I mean, one of the things that we've been concerned about, and it is a not unique to DOD, but it's unique to this town, agencies sometimes are reluctant to share what they're doing with other agencies for whatever reason it's, exists. And I just hope as a as the subcommittee chair on emerging threats, you can encourage them to be a little bit more forthcoming and sharing information, and I appreciate that. I just had the, the deputy director of DARPA in my office uh, about a week and a half ago, and uh, this, among many other topics, was something that, uh, that we discussed. And uh, look, DARPA was created to avoid strategic surprise right after uh, the, the, uh, the Sputnik was, uh, was launched. And uh, they've done an extraordinary job of, of investing in those uh, high-risk, high-payoff uh, technologies, and certainly this is a part of 
uh, looking at uh, biodefenses, biotechnologies and detections is something that the technologies that they develop, uh, transitioning them out of the lab as quickly as possible and getting them into the, the hands of the warfighter. And so uh, getting this in the hands of um, uh, our civilian personnel or the, our, uh, our military to better protect uh, our soldiers in the field or uh, to better protect the homeland is in all of it. It's in the national interest. And we will make sure that uh, we continue to make that point and press that, that home. Yeah, we've had some testimony here about them trying to, uh, frankly, jettison the old BioWatch and build a 2.0 or 3.0. We suspect uh, that uh, uh, DARPA probably has a better plan. I mean, if you have to detect the biological agent uh, on the battlefield, uh, you might have, whatever that technology is, may have some application, broader application in the civilian field. Those are, that's the kind of collaboration that we're really interested in in encouraging. So I appreciate your testimony. Senator Lieberman. Thanks, Governor. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. It's great to see you again. You too. And uh, good to have the opportunity to work with you on this question of biodefense. Our, uh, I should get a, a mention here of a third service, our friendship which is a deep one, no pun intended, but not bad, uh, was uh, uh, formed uh, uh, through our shared love for submarines. You get the connection to the deep now. And, uh, yeah. and uh, the best uh, submarines in the world happen to be made in Rhode Island and Connecticut. But without passing over that, which exactly. is important to exactly. our security anyway, very proud it's of us a pleasure to work with you. And, uh, you know, we, we came together as a bipartisan group to investigate first the problem of biodefense, to see, uh, the biological threat to see whether it was real, uh, and then to become advocates for improving it. Um, I'm proud of the, the uh, various proposals, beginning with the blueprint we put together. <clears throat> but we also made a commitment to each other from the outset that uh, we, were, we were going to do everything we possibly could to make sure that this was not another panel or commission that produced a report and went on the shelf and was never heard from again. Um, and, and you have played a really critical role in making sure that that did not happen to our report uh, through your own um, prioritization of the, bio, of the uh, need to improve our biodefenses and particularly the really um, critical work you did in getting the National uh, Biodefense Strategy into the National Defense Authorization Act. So uh, first I wanted to thank you. And that explains, uh, apart from our friendship with you and our pride that you are now chairman of the Intelligence Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee for House Armed Services, why we were so thrilled because you understand uh, this problem. Of, uh, of, bio of the biological threat. So uh, you touched on this some in your opening statement. I wanted to ask you if you wanted to uh, uh, be a little more detailed about um, uh, the, uh, what you, you hope the subcommittee can accomplish in this session of Congress with regard to um, the bioterrorist threat, biological threat, and biodefense generally. <laughs> Well, the degree possible, I want to make sure that we're taking a whole-of-government approach to uh, the developing biodefenses, uh, surveillance, detection, and then response, uh, making sure that we're eliminating uh, duplication of effort, that we're, every dollar that we are in investing uh, is being maximized, and again, avoiding that 
uh, duplication that can uh, siphon off effort and, and uh, dilute effort and and, uh, and uh, prevent us from investing in other areas that uh, that haven't been properly resourced. So um, it'll be a, a continued uh, focus that we will have. Uh, what I you know, what will I'm determined will not happen uh, is I don't want it to be. Uh, uh, said the bad thing occurs and there was a lack of imagination, uh, uh, if you will, to this potential uh, of this uh, type of an attack ever happening. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that it never happens and getting out ahead of it uh, and, um, and trying to determine uh, where the threats are, what they are, and trying to mitigate them uh, wherever we can. That is, our, that is our goal. And I don't want this to be uh, any, any stone left unturned. Uh, there is something that can, uh, or the whole of government effort can, can uh, be brought to bear. That's what we need to do. Okay, that's good to hear. Um, uh, Governor Rich asked you about <coughs> the threats, <coughs> excuse me, particularly the possibility of a probability, <coughs> maybe, of the, bio, of the North Koreans developing a, a bioterrorist uh, capability. To, to the extent that you can in this open setting, uh, just for, for um, both for the record and for people who are watching as we stream this, um, is the bioterrorist, the biological threat real? And assuming, which I know you, know, you believe it is, what, what are the most serious elements of that threat to the U.S. in, in the years ahead? Well, I, I believe the bio threat is, is absolutely uh, real, and it's one of those um, asymmetric weapons that. Uh, an adversary uh, can use uh, to inflict uh, large-scale casualties, loss of life, on a scale equivalent only to perhaps uh, use of nuclear weapons, sadly. And, uh, and so it's something we have to take seriously. There are uh, obviously, uh, as with, uh, you know, I make this point a lot of times with uh, on the cyber issue, right now the worst weapons are the hands of, of nation states that have the capabilities, but uh, but not necessarily the will to use them. But then there are terrorist organizations that have the, uh, the, uh, the, the will, but not the weapons. And it always has worried me in those use of those asymmetric weapons when that, uh, that divide will be bridged. And this uh, bio uh, weapons falls clearly in that category as well. And right. So, so, so you'd say the threat is both, the biological threat is both from uh, nation states um, or ter and terrorist organizations. Or, or terrorist organizations. Who want to invest in, in, in develops. And, and look, the, it's important to remember that the sympathizers of uh, al-Qaeda or ISIS uh, are not uh, all, not just uh, uneducated people that, uh, uh, that are just uh, known uh, for, for, for fighting. They're, many of the sympathizers and the supporters are PhDs right. and, and highly educated. And we... Uh, ignore their ability to potentially develop a bioweapons capability. We ignore that on our own peril. I agree. I must say for myself, uh, and, and obviously we're all affected by the anthrax attacks on Capitol Hill and also including in Connecticut after 9-11, that it, as I look back, I'm surprised and grateful, of course, that we haven't um, been hit harder by our enemies uh, with uh, biological weapons. But, but of course, that doesn't mean they're not prepared and, and uh, might not someday try to do that. I, I want to ask one last question about uh, 
you mentioned the critical importance in this biodefense effort of intelligence. Um, as you know, I think uh, one of the action items we recommended was that uh, the Director of National Intelligence create a national intelligence manager for biological threats uh, and ensure that this NIM, as they call them, interacts appropriately with other NIMs who address some aspect of the biological threat. That we're, we ask that the DNI make the new uh, biological uh, uh, and intelligence manager the ex executive agent <clears throat> for distributing funds for biological intelligence activities which would mean transferring that responsibility from uh, the CIA now to the uh, new NIM. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that specifically or more generally as I think you referenced in your opening statement the need to coordinate intelligence activities with regard to uh, biological threats? Well, I think a, a, a person uh, that would coordinate intelligence um, for the IC, it's something worth exploring and looking at. I, uh, I, the, um, the, the biodefense uh, coordinators, I recall, the, the exact title, um, uh, was eliminated at the at the White House, so that, that was a mistake. Uh, right. It was put put under the WMDR, uh, if you will. Um, I, I think we need to have uh, that uh, that the coordinator's position reinstated uh, there again, going at the the whole government uh, approach uh, to begin with, uh, not just under the WMDR, but uh, biodefense coordinator. Uh, at the at the at the White House uh, be reinstated, and uh, and that is a first step. And certainly looking at uh, perhaps a, uh, a specific specific person under the DNI that's worth exploring. Um, uh, but I'd have to give that uh, certainly more thought. But that sure. certainly having a whole government approach coordinated at the NSC is uh, is essential as well. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it a lot. Um, thank you, Governor. Senator Congressman, I join my colleagues in thanking you for your commitment and your leadership and your insights again this morning. I, I would note that tonight is the State of the Union message and would also note that we've just experienced uh, the longest shutdown in the history of our country. And I guess that leads me to ask the question that uh, that you certainly can answer with some authority. To what extent do you believe there is an opportunity for real bipartisan consensus in this otherwise dysfunctional and and uh, and, and, and confrontational environment within which you uh, are working each day? What opportunities are there for meaningful cross-party line work to make this a higher priority than it is today? Have you had experiences this year so far or uh, in recent weeks or months that would lead you to think that somehow on a bipartisan basis we could actually do something? You know, Senator, you raised an important point, and I want the American people to know that d despite the, uh, d the divisiveness in Congress and the, the hyper-partisanship that exists today in, in government and really across the country, and the political divides have ever been, been greater, and I've seen them getting uh, worse in the time that 
uh, going on now in my 19th year in Congress. Uh, uh, the, the partisanship has um, I've never been, I don't think it's ever been worse, at least in my time there. But the American people should be um, uh, encouraged to know that when it does come to national security issues, uh, protecting the homeland, uh, there is uh, incredible uh, bipartisan, uh, bipartisan work and coordination that occurs every day. It doesn't always get the headlines, but it's one of the reasons why I love my work on both Armed Services Committee and, and Homeland Security Committee. Uh, and um, if you're ever going to find bipartisanship, it's going to be when it comes to uh, the issue of protecting the country. And so there's far more agreement than there is disagreement on, uh, on national security issues. You see that. Uh, in the uh, the NDAA that is passed uh, every year for more than the last uh, 50 years, that uh, the work gets done, and um, the the last uh, NDAA I'll note passed, as I recall, uh, 60 something votes to one. And so, when it comes to supporting our troops, when it comes to protecting the, the uh, our nation uh, and uh, uh, the American people. There is uh, great coordination, collaboration that happens. So I have no doubt that there will be that same level of coordination and, and, and bipartisan cooperation when it comes to uh, developing a coherent and uh, strategic uh, biodefense strategy as well and, and response. Oh, that's very encouraging. Thank you for that answer. Let me ask if that's the if that's the the environment you're working in, which uh, which uh, would be certainly unusual. Uh, to what extent is there a clear consensus with the release last year of the National Biodefense Strategy uh, around the key priorities following that release and following the, the, the organizational blueprint that we now have? To what extent are you confident that given this new environment or this environment on a bipartisan basis for, for meaningful uh, opportunities to work together, is there a consensus around the two or three key priorities following on to the national defense strategy that, that you can focus on? And if so, what would they be? You know, I would say the next thing would be developing uh, metrics uh, to understand what, uh, uh, you know, what works and what doesn't. What do we need to do and understand what uh, implementing the strategy will mean and what's going to have mean uh, a, a yearly um, res responsible our return on investment, if you will, what's going to be the best uh, strategies going forward. So developing those metrics to know uh, truly uh, where should we be investing our next uh, dollar in, in biodefense strategy and, and uh, detection programs and response, those will be the things I think that will be most, most helpful. You didn't mention uh, one that is, I think, near and dear to the hearts of everybody here on the panel, and that is the critical importance of multi-year funding. Uh, is there any possibility this year that we could see greater support? I, I, if we have the kind of bipartisan environment that you're describing and uh, a recognition of the need for priorities, where would you see multi-year funding lie in terms of those priorities? Sure. We all know that uh, you know, appropriators don't necessarily like to uh, uh, always look at uh, multi-year funding, but I think it's essential in something like this. And and by the way, um, I, I'm a big believer in multi-year funding. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I, along with my then colleague from Connecticut, Rob Simmons, changed the way we 
uh, uh, we uh, buy and build submarines. Uh, Congress had never done multi-year contracting for, uh, for submarines, and as a result, uh, we uh, now get a better bang for our buck. And, and so, uh, again, I don't want to get too far afield from the topic here, but again, I believe in, in multi-year funding. I think it's, it's great when we can uh, lay down investment and have a clear strategy and invest those dollars wisely so that uh, we show consistency. And, and by the way, that comes on uh, when it comes to developing uh, uh, biodefenses and uh, the type of uh, uh, pharmaceuticals that develop uh, the um, compounds that would be developed for uh, guarding against uh, a bioweapons attack. So uh, those types of investments are, are invaluable. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Jim? Thank you, Chairman. <clears throat> Good morning. Um, Good to see you again. The uh, Armed Services Committee uh, rightly spends a lot of its, most of its focus obviously on military threats, but it, it as do we, has responsibility for prepare, protecting the nation from pandemic um, uh, events as well. Uh, last week I participated in an in a, um, uh, exercise uh, hosted by the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, some of your colleagues from the Congress were there, and others, Bob Cadlick, participated. I, I was the Speaker of the House for the day. <clears throat> and um, it was fascinating. We, we looked at a <clears throat> the hypothetical situation was that a, uh, an uncharacterized virus had um, appeared in patients in Germany and then in, in Venezuela, and then we were to advise the president as to what to do. But by the time we were finished, there were 20 million Americans dead. Uh, and that is that is not a fanciful uh, and impossible nor impossible situation. So uh, I wonder if you could just uh, share with us your thoughts and your new role, if you've had time to even contemplate this yet, what you might um, foresee for the subcommittee in terms of oversight of our um, capabilities, uh, particularly the military's role in protecting the nation uh, in the event of such an outbreak. So um, the, the first will be uh, focus on uh, on detection and understanding uh, uh, where we can invest in, in more effective capabilities that, that if that, uh, that day ever come, uh, came that we would have very uh, rapid uh, situational awareness uh, and then having a, an adequate uh, response plan. Um, you know, how do we get countermeasures deployed as quickly as possible? So. Um, uh, obviously, there would be plans in place, and I, if this, if I'm, if I'm answering your question uh, the, the way you're, uh, the way you're looking for, um, tell me if I'm not. But uh, it, surveillance quickly, and then um, uh, having developed and deploying those those countermeasures uh, as quickly and effectively as possible. And and that, by the way, comes in working both this whole government approach. It's not just uh, government, but uh, the. Uh, Civil government, the private sector working in partnership, and so that's everything from uh, you know how do you rapidly uh, distribute uh, countermeasures? How do you have them pre-positioned wherever possible? Uh, how do you have them uh, developed and, and stored so that if we needed to access a national stockpile, that uh, that that is that is there? All of these things need to be thought of and and, and planned ahead and exercised. So um, and if. Obviously, the local governments uh, get overwhelmed. They're going to call in resources from the federal government. Uh, it would be DHS, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, 
All of these things have to be well thought out and coordinated. And how do we? And that's a, by the way, private sector. You know, do we do we utilize uh, uh, even our uh, private sector uh, carriers uh, and all the mail service to to uh, deploy countermeasures? All of these things need to be thought of and properly planned. I know that the the report, uh, the commission has has thought of these things as well. Thank you. And similarly, the the committee, I'm sure. Focuses primarily on on uh, thinking through our our preparedness to, with regard to conventional weapons, nuclear weapons, and military weapons uh, of those kinds. Um, do you feel that your colleagues in the on the subcommittee and the committee are are fully cognizant of the threats to warfighters from biological potential biological attacks? Well, I think they have a general understanding that it's a it is certainly a, a possibility, but it's going to be all, up to all of us to. Uh, constantly have that as a reminder and uh, refresh ourselves on the uh, on the threat. Uh, we don't do briefings or hearings on this topic. It's easy to get distracted. I'm sure for members on on other other topics. So uh, certainly as chairman, I see that as a responsibility to keep this issue front and center. And I I, I most certainly will. I think it's similarly critical that the the your colleagues be thinking about. The, the um, uh, what would happen in the events of a pandemic in terms of its its effect on our our military personnel yes. and their ability to do their jobs uh, with, with a significant number of them perhaps out of commission. Thank right. you. Whether it's something that occurs by the way that's man made an attack or a uh, something that's naturally uh, occurring, uh, uh, influenza uh, by way of example. Many of these things, these capabilities that we developed are multi purpose. So. Uh, responding to a holistic uh, in a holistic way to any range of threats is is uh, it's the nation's best interest to be prepared. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. Ken, thank you, and uh, thank you for appearing again, sir. This has been uh, very lightning, as was your last appearance. I wanted to follow on from Senator Lieberman's comments, his questions about us for national manager um, under the director of national intelligence. And that goes to the question of sort of centralizing and coordinating biodefense functions within the executive branch. And um, that's been a sort of a major focus of ours. In fact, you know, the, the National Blueprint for Biodefense, the, our initial publication, I'm sure you have a copy on your nightstand. It's dog-eared. I look at it every <laughs> night. Um, but it, is, uh, it, it goes into a number of different recommendations, and a lot of them have to do with trying to coordinate all the different aspects of the executive branch that have a piece of the biodefense military, intelligence, law enforcement, health, um, very disparate. You know, the other side of the coin, of course, is the oversight function on Capitol Hill, and that suffers from the same problem, that there are pieces of biodefense jurisdiction in, you know, countless committees and subcommittees across the Hill. And I know uh, Governor Ridge and I and others have spoken on this issue, and there's been a lot of focus on how to try to coordinate the Homeland Security oversight jurisdiction writ large, but then specifically as to biodefense, I think it's a particular problem because, you know, the stronger the oversight, the more focused and integrated the oversight, the more focused and integrated the biodefense effort on the, the executive branch's side. So um, long tee up to the question, do you have any thoughts about how Congress, and I know there have been efforts along the way, but how Congress can better marshal its oversight resources and maybe focus them in a fewer number of committees and kind of kickstart that effort so that we can uh, then pay, take advantage of the momentum from the national strategy to try to, you know, 
keep things moving at a greater clip in the future? Yeah, a great question. And uh, it's one of the frustrations I have on uh, the cybersecurity issue as well. Yeah, exactly. This is another topic. Same that, area. You know, at a time where we need to be able to move with greater agility and streamline our oversight, we recognize, and many on this panel clearly understand it better than I do, that the, uh, the Congress wasn't set up, or the legislative process wasn't set up uh, with speed in mind. And the founding fathers wanted the process mm -hmm. to be slow and deliberative. But on, on cases where we, on issues of national security, where we need to have better coordination, as well as being able to move with greater agility, uh, we need to recognize a, 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 a reform process, if you will. And I know that there's an effort right now that, uh, that Speaker Pelosi has launched. Uh, Jim McGovern from Massachusetts uh, is helping to spearhead it to look at uh, how do we better streamline Congress and, uh, and align our, our, our oversight uh, and responsibilities so that we strike that right balance between doing robust oversight but being able to move an issue with uh, with greater agility uh, and speed when we when we need to, so it will hopefully the, it, it work the work product they're involved with right now and this uh, this review of of the uh, the workings of Congress and how oversight works uh, the the better off we will be if, uh, once they they've completed their work. But it needs to happen, and there's a again a number of topics where you know we can we can point to where the process has moved too slow or, or just by way of example. Uh, too much oversight can can uh, also dilute our efforts as well. Uh, just the last thing I'll say is on cybersecurity, uh, there are some 80 different committees and subcommittees that have some type of jurisdiction over cybersecurity. You know, if we can, if, if that many committees subcommittees can slow down the process of being able to move legislation through Congress that needs to move more quickly, uh, it can be difficult to get anything done. So. I hope we can uh, see meaningful reform and, and streamlining this in this area as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a sobering example of cyber, where a place where we really need to catch up on you know ground, lost ground over the years, and just to to look at the efforts that executive branch officials who are responsible for the cyber program have to put in to be responsive to eighty different committees. Right. How do you, you know, get anything done? Takes them away from their day job. Clearly, <laughs> agreed. Okay. Thank you for your thoughtful response. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, good to see you, Congressman. Great to see you again, too, Lisa. Thank and, you uh, work. Thank you for uh, your work on um, pushing forward on getting a, a national biodefense strategy uh, out there and the requirement you helped shepherd. Uh, and thank you also for your work on cybersecurity, obviously something you and I worked yes, together on. Um, and as one of the people accountable to many uh, of those committees, I echo uh, the uh, remarks of my colleague about the need for uh, greater coordination on the, on the cyber side. I want to pick up on a few themes from my colleagues. One is um, this issue, and you alluded to it in one of your comments, on governance and the need for metrics for what I think the administration should be applauded for the uh, strategy that they did put forward, a number of very good objectives and sub-objectives in that strategy. Um, but I think that the devil is in the details on milestones for that you alluded to in terms of your comment on metrics, milestones to achieve those objectives and what does success look like. But very importantly, how and who has the responsibility for really making sure all of those objectives 
get achieved. So uh, in the strategy, HHS is, of course, given the lead to, to do this. But do you have a sense of how the administration is actually implementing this and, and really governing the implementation of this strategy? No, and that's the question that really needs to be answered. I would expect that uh, if you ask the administration, they would probably say, well, it's going to be the, uh, the WOD coordinator or the czar, rather, uh, at the NSC. But uh, again, I think it needs to be uh, the, the, the previous coordinator position that was, uh, that was eliminated recently. Uh, should probably be the person that is, that is making sure that there's a, a whole of government approach and, and uh, reaching across departments and agencies uh, with policy and budgetary authority to see that that national strategy is, is implemented properly. Uh, it's, um, uh, it would be best there as opposed to in the, I think, the, the hands of the, the WMZ czar, WMD czar, but um, it, uh, if, if not the coordinator's position reinstated, then there needs to be adequate resource and uh, attention paid by the WMD czar. Thanks very much. I, I welcome those comments because I, I agree with you that the, the centralized function and, and shepherding a strategy like that really does need to come uh, from a place, I think, in the White House that can really pull all of the agencies to the table and settle turf disputes. Uh, right, and, and, and I, I think it would be a mistake to just assume that it would be OMB that's going to be the coordinator, which is probably the default mm-hmm. right now, and that's not a good answer. Right. It really needs to be a coordinator uh, uh, that, that has the policy and budgetary authority to reach across departments and agencies to make sure they're implementing the strategy properly. Thanks very much, Congressman. I I want to ask you another question. Um, Given your expertise and your leadership of the Emerging Threats and Intelligence Subcommittee, um, last week we heard from the DNI and the leaders of the intelligence community in the Worldwide Threat Assessment, and there was a public uh, assessment that was issued. And I noted there was a number of themes and uh, factors that were highlighted in there that I think do not bode well for the bio threat, namely um, the increasing alignment of Russia and China, the um, increasing areas of political instability, and the focus of many of our adversaries on uh, emerging and new technologies that can be used for both good or for ill, which this panel's work has has previously um, highlighted. So I guess my question is, is this an area, those that kind of trifecta of concern when it comes to the bio threat, is this an area that your subcommittee plans on looking at, particularly with regard to the threat to the warfighter uh, when it comes from those, uh, those kind of three factors maybe aligning in a negative way when it comes to the bio threat? Sure. Um, again, that's had both nation-state challenges and non-nation-state challenges, and, and use of surrogates is something we have to we have to clearly be worried about, and so that's something that I absolutely intend on, on focusing on as part of our subcommittee's work. Okay, and then lastly, if I might, uh, Mr. Chairman, one one more question. Um, one of the reasons I was so excited to join this panel is because its focus is both on the naturally occurring emerging infectious disease and the threat that that poses. Um, you know, we're we're just uh, after the hundredth uh, year anniversary of the Spanish flu uh, epidemic in 1918, and um, you know, as you as you noted, one of the greatest threats we face is a is a new strain of flu and, and the damage that could do. Um, the it seems to me, and the, and the staff um, in preparing us for this um, 
meeting today reminded us that the Nun Luger program, which over 20 years ago did such a good job of training more than 100 state and local um, first responders uh, and developed this kind of train-the-trainer uh, approach to readying our state and local first responders for a pandemic response. But that training program has now kind of gone by the wayside. Do you have thoughts, and where does that rank in terms of um, using that DOD expertise to help train state and local uh, capacity uh, going forward? Yeah. Is that on the agenda for the committee? Uh, it, we sh- I definitely believe in the in the, the public-private uh, uh, partnership. And so um, looking at uh, the, uh, the uh, non-Luger uh, commission that had uh, expired, I think, in, in 2000, and, and uh, that, uh, that effort expired in 2013, perhaps uh, reauthorizing that is, is certainly worth exploring. Uh, but we need to make sure that our uh, the, the civil authorities and local uh, uh, Officials are as well prepared as our military needs to be prepared, uh, both in the detection part of this and and response, and doing everything we can to make sure that they are protected. So protecting the uh, the responders, uh, if you will, has to be uh, first and foremost on our minds, and something that we is definitely worth exploring. And I certainly will be looking into that as well. Thank you very much, Congressman. Yeah. Over the past couple of years, we've been assisted by a lot of uh, really talented people on this commission, and uh, we don't have enough seats up front, so unfortunately they're seated next to us. But I want to ask my colleagues, uh, Dr. Alexander, Dr. Troy, my colleagues to the right here, do you have any questions for our Congressman? Dr. Troy? Yes, uh, Congressman, thank you for your testimony. I, I was intrigued by what you were saying about our opponents being uh, highly educated. And I was wondering if you, uh, it sounded oddly specific, so I was wondering if uh, we have plans to kind of win the hearts and minds of people who are like that, highly educated, but opposed to us, or to prevent them from getting educated in our top flight technical institutions, or to interdict them from what they're trying to do with their nefarious purposes. So pretty broad question. Um, But uh, obviously winning hearts and minds has to be uh, part of our planning, uh, and uh, again, that's where a, a whole of government approach uh, to our response to terrorism, uh, for example, is uh, so uh, essential. Uh, we're not going to win that uh, uh, the, the, the war on terrorism. Uh, we're not going to win that war uh, just on the on the on the battlefield alone. It just doesn't work that way. We need to uh, be working harder at uh, at winning uh, hearts and minds. Um, uh, a big supporter of the uh, the Global Engagement Center now at uh, at, at State, and so um, that would be uh, uh, part of properly funding that and, and having a whole government strategy going forward will be in messaging is is, is essential. I, I guess what I'm saying is, do you think we're doing an adequate job in, in no. those efforts? No, I don't. I, I think uh, uh, we need to redouble our efforts in, in that. In that area, working uh, with friends and allies, uh, um, certainly being aware of what's happening on, on social media, for example, and um, uh, you know, we uh, the, the after the, the, the Cold War uh, went away, um, entities like Voice of America and, and others being a, uh, you know having a response to um, you know the our, our adversaries, adversaries or enemies during the 
during the Cold War, we had a, a counter-messaging program. I think we need to get better at uh, counter-messaging and, and, uh, and the, the challenges that we face on uh, a number of security threats. So again, it doesn't come just out of DOD. Uh, it doesn't just come out of state. It's got to be a coordinated whole government approach and, and whole nation approach. And working with partners and allies around the world is essential. Thank you. Colleagues, anything here? Uh, just a couple of final questions, if I might. You know, uh, military is always, uh, at all levels of training, I think probably just about every branch had some chem-bio training because it does impact your operational effectiveness on the battlefield, particularly Army Marines, that kind of thing. Way back when, in the 60s, it was kind of basic. I think now it's much more sophisticated. Uh, but the panel believes that Given DOD's scrutiny of the threat, the knowledge that our adversaries have that capability in spite of the treaties they may have signed suggesting they're only going to be developing defensive capability, the offensive capability exists. Therefore, within the military, there's training, there's equipment, there are medical countermeasures. We have to be prepared. What would you recommend that the panel do for us to ensure that that knowledge and experience that DOD has, and follow up to Lisa's question, training, equipment, medical countermeasures, is transferred in a fairly expeditious way uh, to those uh, incredible groups of first responders out there who uh, we rely upon daily and we take for granted. So, is it legislative language? Do we need uh, specific appropriation? Would you think that a directive from the subcommittee, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I'd really like you to give us some guidance uh, because we do have enormous respect for what DOD's done in this space. We just want to transfer that knowledge over to those who may be called upon to use it in the future, whether it's a natural occurring event or a deliberate offense. They need to know it, and right now, as Lisa pointed out, we're not, not too much of that coordination, not very little of that training is going on now, and we would like to accelerate it. Your thoughts? Sure. So I think there's a number of options that we, we could and, and should explore. Uh, I'll give those greater thought uh, myself, but uh, certainly working with the, the Guard and Reserve is a good, good place to start, uh, taking those unique uh, DOD capabilities. And, making sure that uh, that Guard and Reserve is, is up to speed and uh, as well resourced as possible. Uh, and then working with um, uh, others in the, uh, the, the um, public and the, the private health sector uh, is important. So that um, whether it's uh, first responders uh, or the people in our, in our departments of, of health, um, and making sure that we have best practices in place having this as well thought out and well planned as possible. Uh, again, best uh, preparation is going to be our, our best defense for uh, a quick and inadequate response. So, um, you know, looking at ways of how can we leverage those lessons learned and make sure that they filter down and not just kept at, um, at, the, at the most elite levels, uh, for example, at the SOCOM level, but but also that uh, we're appropriate, we're possible, that those, uh, that, that knowledge, that training, uh, that uh, preparedness is, uh, is uh, in, in with civilian authorities as well. 
And I appreciate you including it, and I, the, pub, the broader public health community in that constellation of uh, civilian uh, support that, that is needed in the event of a, a naturally occurring or the, a, an offensive uh, uh, attack. So we thank you. Any further questions from my colleagues? Uh, once again, Congressman, uh, answer the call. We thank you. Uh, we look forward to uh, your work as a subcommittee chair. From our perspective, it's one of the most important subcommittees on the Hill because of, the, because of what DOD is doing in this space and the lessons learned and the experience that can be applied to the broader civilian sector. So we look to you to help coordinate that activity. And uh, if you need us to come up and uh, encourage your committee to do that, I think we'd be prepared to do so. But thank you for your thank continued you. support of the panel and for your, uh, you're always on call. We thank you. Best wishes to you. Thank you. I, I appreciate your, your words and for your leadership on, on this topic. Uh, you're all to be commended for uh, the time and the effort you're putting into this. This is clearly not a report or an effort that's going to be put on a shelf somewhere. It's because of uh, the, the due diligence you have done, the, the credibility and the uh, respect that people have for, uh, for your commitment to public service, the work you've done over many decades, and, and we're grateful for your efforts, and we will do all we can to make sure that the, uh, uh, the, the your work product is put into practice. So, well, if you have two more champions like you, we'll move a little quicker. So, thank you very much. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take instead of a fifteen-minute break, a ten-minute break for coffee or for whatever else you need the ten minutes for. Thank you. <laughs>
Okay, everyone, please take their seats. The panel is uh, pleased to welcome uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Counting Weapons of Mass Destruction, uh, Dirk Maurer, uh, J.D. Marine Corps Reserve, Semper Fi. Semper Fi. Um, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Crisis Management and Mission Assurance at the Department of Defense. And it's interesting, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, before he took on this role, in public service. He's also served on the Senate Armed Services Committee, the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, and the House Committee on Homeland Security. So uh, from multiple perspectives now at DOD, uh, we appreciate your presence and your testimony. The floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Chairman Lieberman, Chairman Ridge, members of the panel. I'm pleased to have this opportunity to share with you the Department of Defense perspective on the challenges of defending against biological weapons. I want to thank you also for the leadership role that this panel has played in keeping a focus on biodefense in the broader community. Government service, as you know, demands we focus on the important even as we manage the urgent. This panel has played a useful role in reinforcing the need to focus on the importance of refining and updating our national biological defense capabilities. The Department of Defense's enduring mission is to provide combat-credible military forces needed to deter war and to protect the security of our nation. If that deterrence fails, we must be able to win. To improve our ability to do these missions, the National Defense Strategy, strategy released in January of last year, outlines three lines of effort for the Department. Rebuild readiness while building a more lethal force, strengthen alliances and attract new partners, and improve performance and affordability by reforming our business practices. I'd like to address each of these and discuss their implications for our DOD biodefense effort. I'm also going to update you on the progress of two critical improvements to how we go about the business of shaping our biodefense capabilities. Inside DOD, we're working to better integrate the various levels of the CWMD enterprise through a new CWMD Unity of Effort Council. In the interagency, the critical change is the integration and coordination being brought to our national biodefense effort through the publication of the National Biodefense Strategy and Implementation Plan, along with the National Security Presidential Memorandum 14, which implements it. This establishes a new federal government structure led by the HHS Secretary, Azar, and directs an ongoing integrated assessment of the national biodefense enterprise. The NDS underscores that the central challenge to U.S. prosperity and security is the emergence of long-term strategic competition by what the national security strategy classifies as revisionist powers, China and Russia. 
Both China and Russia have sophisticated technical sectors to include robust bio-related sectors. The NDS requires DOD to consider the implications of a long-term strategic competition with near-peer competitors, and we are carefully considering the implications of such competition in the biological arena. Next, threats from rogue nations, such as North Korea and Iran, remain. We would expect bio-threats from these types of countries to be more traditional, if you will, including agents that have long been identified as good candidates for an adversary to use for a bio-attack because of their robustness in the environment, their lethality, and their infectiousness or persistence. Finally, the threats from terrorists and lone wolves also remain. From these adversaries, we would expect attacks that might also use traditional agents or toxins, but such attacks would likely be smaller in scope, delivered using covert means, and either ignore the danger of civilian casualties or actively target civilians. Senator Daschle, I also worked in the Hart Building in 2001 when your office was sent an anthrax letter, so I know that you know exactly how this threat can take place. The first line of effort in the NDS is building a more lethal force. Part of doing that means improving our ability of our forces to operate and win in all environments, including contaminated ones. One element of deterrence is for our adversaries to be aware that the use of WMD will not stop our forces so they have no incentive to use them against us. DOD also needs to stand ready to provide defense support to civil authorities, such as HHS or DHS, should they require unique military capabilities or additional capacity to respond to infectious disease naturally occurring or otherwise. Such events can also affect the readiness of our force. Correspondingly, the first focus must be the health of our force to ensure that we can continue to defend the nation. DOD is working to understand and anticipate both the promise and potential peril of cutting-edge technologies, including synthetic biology. I won't dive into this issue myself because you'll soon hear from my colleague, Dr. Hassel, but I will say that the solution to this threat is the same as, as the, uh, the solution is the same as the threat, these same cutting-edge technologies. You'll hear more from him. The National Defense Strategy underscores the importance of strengthening alliances and partnerships. The value of these relationships can clearly be seen in the benefits that DOD accrues from our work in the context of the global health security agenda and our cooperative threat reduction efforts, and more traditional bilateral and multilateral defense dialogues with allies and partners on biodefense cooperation. Within my office, I oversee our cooperative threat reduction policy team, which includes the Biological Threat Reduction Program. In conjunction with my DOD colleagues from Health Affairs, my office is also responsible for leading and coordinating DOD involvement with the GHSA. I want to spend just a few minutes discussing the role of DOD specifically through the CTR program in building foreign nations, foreign partner nations' biosafety and biosecurity capacities before touching on some new approaches that we in CTR are taking toward achieving those goals. I'd like to highlight our support for regional efforts that enable collective action among neighboring countries for improving global biosecurity capabilities. By doing this, we're able to strengthen our international alliances, reduce dependence on DOD programmatic support, and allow our partners to assume a greater leadership role in their region. First, DOD approaches global health security from a threat reduction and force health protection perspective. This both applies broadly to our GHSA commitments and specifically to our biosecurity objectives. As we all know, biothreats emanating from 
substandard biosecurity or biosafety practices do not respect local or even national boundaries. Any incident where anyone can rapidly become a health security incident in everywhere. Such threats can rapidly grow to impact U.S. forces and readiness, as well as regional stability and security. In the CTR program, we seek to, strength, we seek to strengthen biosecurity, biosafety, and biosurveillance practices and standards in partner countries. We do this by working to secure collections of especially dangerous pathogens into a minimal number of safe and secure facilities, provide technical consultations, risk assessments, and training that build human capacity and internal expertise. We sponsor exercises and host workshops with local partners, both civilian and military, and by making physical renovations and security improvements to laboratory facilities that are hosting those dangerous pathogens. After receiving training, we look to those experts from our partners to conduct their own training and workshops, symposiums, and collaborative research engagements with local and regional partners. The objective of such efforts is to improve partners' domestic biosecurity, biosafety, and biosurveillance capabilities, and promote a culture of expertise in laboratory best practices and bio-risk management, both locally and regionally. The ultimate goal of such efforts is to establish local hubs of expertise that can operate independently of continuous DOD support. This helps sustain international investments for long-term benefits in a country and region. A great example of this is the Nunn Luger Center in Georgia, which was previously supported by DOD funds, but now operates independently as a regional center of expertise for biosafety and biosecurity training and promoting best laboratory practices. Second, we're working to expand the number of donor nations who provide technical or financial support advance shared biosecurity and biosafety goals. We seek to coordinate these activities, or our activities with these nations to help amplify the effect of our own efforts. For example, in the Global Health Security Agenda Ministerial in Indonesia last year, I was able to announce that DOD CTR and Australia's Indo-Pacific Center for Health Security are actively exploring ways that we can joint fund projects in Southeast Asia. Finally, my office works to increase the participation of partner militaries and ministries of defense in multi-sectoral global health security efforts <coughs> such as GHSA. We work to raise awareness in and across foreign defense and military communities about the national security aspects of global health security, both in terms of force health protection and ensuring regional stability, and to foster greater collaboration between defense and civilian communities. NDS prioritizes changing DOD's business practices as a critical element of modernizing our capabilities. One way to do that is by instituting, improved, instituting or improving the audit, monitoring, and evaluation program that many of our international programs use. The Cooperative Threat Reduction Program that I just mentioned has a robust <coughs> AM&E program that it has been developing, and it, they are sharing their experiences with other similar programs to help improve vis visibility and efficiency. Another way to improve our efficiency is to work more closely with our allies and partners who also have international capacity building efforts to, to leverage our mutual programs to ensure that we are all getting the most bang for our buck. I recently hosted two of our closest allies for discussions about strategy and priority in the threat reduction area. I expect these conversations will lead to further efficiencies and increased effectiveness for all of our countries. I've focused on the lines of effort that NDS outlines for us. We're making good progress in each of those areas. More progress is needed, and we look to colleagues both inside and outside the government to help us make that progress. As I mentioned earlier, there are two reform efforts that are helping us meet those challenges. 
the Unity of Effort Council inside the department, and the National Biodefense Strategy and its assessment mechanism outside of it. It's no secret that that the DOD CWMD enterprise is vast, almost as vast as the department itself. There is no single official other than the Secretary of Defense or the Deputy Secretary who holds simultaneous responsibility for all aspects of the CWMD mission to include strategy, policy, research, acquisition, training, capability, intelligence, and forces. The current OSD organizational structure, however, enables access to this expertise and facilitates coordination and integration across the DOD CWMD enterprise. Like other DOD functional missions, CWMD budgeting, resource allocation, prioritization, capability development, and force development and employment are all decided through OSD-driven prioritization processes, boards, and protocols. To supplement these processes, the Deputy Secretary directed the establishment of the DOD CWMD Unity of Effort Council in April of last year to promote unity of effort among all the stakeholders. All enterprise stakeholders from over 20 offices around the department participate in ASD, DASD, and director-level discussions to assess gaps in strategic guidance to identify issues that need senior-level attention. Any unresolved issues and recommendations are elevated to the Secretary or the Deputy Secretary for decision. The Assistant Secretary of Defense for Homeland Defense and Global Security and the Director of the Joint Staff, J-5, co-chair the Unity of Effort Council, and the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, Biological Defense Programs serves as the Vice Chair. The Council has brought focus to issues that require senior-level attention and, as my boss likes to say, get stuff done. All this is to say that there remains a sustained focus across DOD components on the CWMD mission. We do not have every challenge figured out yet, but we are using the Unity of Effort Council's broad membership to ensure transparency, raise concerns, and collaborate on solutions. Unity of Effort is the hallmark of another initiative, the one for for which this panel pointed the way. The National Biodefense Strategy and Implementation Plan, along with NSPM 14, were approved by the President last year. (coughs) NBS outlines five goals that are fundamental to all that we do across the government enterprise. Goal two focuses on capabilities to prevent bio-incidents. Prevention is vastly preferred to consequence management, so DOD focuses on deterring bio-attack to the maximum extent possible. Goal three is focused on biodefense enterprise preparedness to mitigate the impacts of bio-incidents. Should deterrence fail, DOD must still be able to execute mission-critical functions, and so we focus relentlessly on assuring preparedness. Goal four, the end state, is rapid response to limit the impacts of bio-incidents. DOD's decision to build CBRN Response Enterprise is an example of how our commitment to domestic response capabilities. The end state of Goal 5 is to facilitate recovery efforts to restore the community, the economy, and the environment after a bio-incident. Perhaps most importantly, NSPM 14 directs a whole-of-government assessment mechanism to help identify and correct any capability or capacity gaps across the biodefense enterprise, including among public and private sector partners. The first biodefense assessment process is underway. The Interagency Biodefense Coordination Team, or BCT, led by HHS, is gathering data to assure to assess government-wide capabilities and resource commitments and to assess gaps and priority and develop priorities. For example, my office is leading the DOD group for goal two, which as I noted is focused on prevention. DOD has assigned a defense professional as a DOD representative to work at the BCT in HHS 
who will help pull together interagency information about each goal and assess the information rigorously to identify any gaps. That assessment will be provided to the cabinet level group, which will examine the gaps and prioritize addressing them. DOD's biodefense objectives are aligned with the national defense strategy, lethal forces, strengthened alliances and partnerships, and updated business practices. The challenges are real, but we have a talented community of colleagues in the DOD and the interagency striving to assure that both today and into the future, our forces can deter and, if necessary, win the nation's wars, even given the <coughs> threats posed by a biological event. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much for your testimony. I appreciate, uh, from our perspective, the attention you've given to very specific recommendations of the uh, panel and how we need to try to address them uh, within DOD. Would you give us a primer to the extent uh, you're able of the organizational structure that oversees uh, a broader range of biological issues within DOD? I mean, you've got training, you've got exercises, you, you've got countermeasures. Uh, I mean, it just, it's, you're a $700 billion enterprise. You've got over 2 million people working there and uh, bunch, probably almost a million more contractors. So you've got this monolith Bio is part of it. Biosecurity is maybe not the highest priority, but regardless of that, could you give us a snapshot of the organizational structure that oversees bio? Yes, sir. Um, so roughly, and you could apply this to just about any, uh, any issue area within the department, um, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy provides the broad <coughs> strategy and direction for, for which way the department should go for either regional issues or, or functional issues. Um, the, um, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for, excuse me, the Under Secretary of Defense for ANS Acquisition and Sustainment, newly created last year, uh, divided up between uh, what used to be the Under Secretary for ATNL. Uh, they're responsible for, for acquisition uh, of, of uh, equipment, supplies, uh, everything you'd need to, uh, to ensure uh, an effective capability. Uh, I know uh, Dr. Hassel, who follows after me, uh, can probably give you much more detail about that specifically. Uh, and then, of course, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering uh, leads the efforts to research into new capabilities that are needed uh, for our forces to be, to be able to meet the mission essential requirements that they've developed. And, of course, the services train and equip uh, our, all of our forces that are then eventually provided to the combatant commanders uh, for use around the world as directed by, by the President and the Secretary. It's a very brief precis, but I could probably dive deeper into more of that if you'd like. If the, assist, if the acting Secretary of Defense says, I need a primer on everything we're doing in biodefense, is there a single point of contact or a small group that he goes to to give him a broad picture of what's going on? Sir, that would most likely come to my boss, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Homeland Defense and Global Security. And we would, he would pass that to, to me, and we would work across the, inter across the department to ensure that we have uh, all the information that he needed to provide that primer. Uh, most likely we would use that through the Unity of Effort Council that, uh, provide, that meets nearly weekly at, at various levels to, uh, to address various issues as they come up. But that would, that would be who we would reach out to to put that paper together, but it would most likely be my office. Probably one of the most important pieces of information that DOD would need and have access to on an ongoing basis is intelligence, vis-a-vis -vis threat actors and the pathogens, real or synthetic, whatever. What kind of uh, 
coordination do you have with DNI and the broader intelligence community to make sure that uh, you are absolutely current on, uh, with that kind of information as it affects uh, your training, acquisition, countermeasures, et cetera? Sir, um, we, um, my office mostly directly engages with the with, uh, defense counterproliferation uh, element of uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which of course is connected throughout the entire intelligence community. Um, it, it's mostly through them that we that we receive our intelligence and, and make requests for uh, improving our uh, prioritization for what we'd uh, uh, issues that we think need uh, need improved attention or uh, greater uh, collection assets. Um, we have daily contact with them. Um, that we. I'll leave it at that. Yes, sir. All right, very, very good. Uh, quickly, with regard to integration of the, the intelligence and operational matters with our friends at NATO, I presume that's an ongoing relationship as well? Yes, sir, it is. As a matter of fact, um, uh, part of my portfolio is I co-chair with, uh, currently with our Polish counterparts, the, uh, the uh, NATO uh, uh, Committee on, uh, on Counterproliferation in the Defense Format. And that works uh, across NATO to to help improve our uh, our uh, CBR and defense capabilities throughout with the NATO structure, as well as uh, improve our uh, training abilities across NATO. And what is your one final question for for me? Uh, yes, given your portfolio and dealing with WMD and Bio could very well be one of those. Uh, what kind of interaction do you or the department have with the public health authorities and other civilian authorities? in terms of ongoing engagement, a sustained relationship? Uh, uh, a very robust one, actually, sir. Um, we, had, we had worked uh, regularly with uh, Dr. Cadillac's office uh, previously uh, before the establishment of the uh, National uh, uh, Biodefense Strategy, but the, the structure that, that that put in place has, has uh, improved and increased the, uh, the contacts between uh, the department and uh, and HHS and uh, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, Dr. Cadillac. Um, we, part of the OSD policy, one of my uh, one of my peers has sent someone to be permanently as a member of that team, and they have regular uh, meetings both in the department and uh, and uh, <clears throat> through, throughout the interagency dealing with them. So we have very sustained contacts. In that context, is there any direct uh, uh, line of communication or communications with uh, directly to uh, state and local authorities or to public health authorities, or do you do virtually your work with HHS and it's their responsibility to collaborate with uh, the state and locals? Uh, possibly getting a little bit outside my area of expertise, but I think we primarily work with HHS um, through the uh, uh, through the. Um, Defense support to civil authorities process. Um, there, there is a possibility that we could work with uh, uh, low state, and local public health officials, but I, I don't think that happens quite as regularly. I appreciate that, sir. And by the way, I appreciate the candid the answer. I don't want to run across too many people that says that might be out of my area of expertise. But I'm do the best I can. I appreciate it. Great, great testimony, by the way, in the Q and A you just had. It was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Senator. Thank you, Governor Rich. Uh, that honesty is what Secretary Morrow learned in his years in the Senate. <laughs> you said it. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your service. Uh, I really must say I'm proud. Since you uh, serve colleagues of mine on two of the committees I was on, to see you in this position. Thank you, sir. Um, 
The title of the hearing today is uh, Military Defense Against Biological Weapons, Fighting the Next War. Uh, and so let, let's define war broadly. Obviously, we hope and pray that we have neither of these kinds, but one would be a traditional conflict, presumably regionally, locally, and another more asymmetrical. In, in, in your position, do you think that it's plausible that an enemy of the U.S. in either of those conflicts, or I suppose of our allies, uh, would use biological weapons against us? Uh, certainly, I think it's plausible, Senator. Um, it, the, the, we, we see a, a possible threat from any range of options covering, as, as I mentioned, from you know, uh, near-peer nation-state competitors all the way down to uh, terrorists and, and lone wolf actors. Right. Um, so it, it's, it's quite possible and certainly something of great concern. And um, that's obviously what a part of your responsibility is to help prepare us to, um, to defend against that. Yes, sir. I, my office in, uh, supports the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Homeland Defense and Global Security um, in providing a broad strategy and policy for the department and how we're going to um, respond to uh, CBRN threats and, and worked with the rest of the department in, in executing how we would engage that. Right. And, and as part of that, uh, obviously, the intelligence we have about what um, uh, nations or non-state actors who are hostile to us are doing is critically important to what you're doing, I assume. Absolutely, Senator. So I, I, I appreciate uh, all that and that you're on the case. Um, I was interested and, uh, I must say, uh, encouraged, too, by the extent to which in your testimony, Secretary Moore, you talked about uh, global health security, which is... Um, you know, not uh, uh, war uh, as it's thought of more traditionally, but I, I also noted that, uh, and you add to it or correct me if I'm wrong, that you you cited two um, Department of Defense um, reasons why um, uh, you, as a leader in, in our Department of Defense, are involved in global health security. One is to protect the health of our uh, forces, of our troops. And the other, which we don't think about probably enough, is that um, an infectious disease pandemic uh, will create regional instability, which will also have security uh, implications or, or effects. So do you want to you uh, expand on either of those? Do I have it right that that's the, that's the basis for your involvement in uh, global health security? in addition to more traditional defense? Uh, yes, Senator, you do have that correct. So uh, uh, force health protection is, is one of the main reasons that we, that we want to engage with uh, global health security. As, uh, as you all know, a disease is no respecter of, of borders or, uh, or uh, political entities. So as we've seen, as we saw in 2014 uh, with the Ebola outbreak and as we're seeing now in the, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo with their Ebola outbreak, um, the the potential for for it to spread and cause great damage and and increase uh, both uh, regional security concerns um, and affect affect forces who happen to be there um, is, is potentially a great problem. So ideally, what the global health security agenda wants to do is improve every nation's ability to uh, 
to protect itself against infectious disease. And by building up those broad uh, 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 biosurveillance, biosafety, biosecurity capabilities among, among all nations, that will reduce the likelihood of a, of a broad uh, wildfire sort of pandemic that would have effect on our forces and, and certainly in regional stability. Sure. So um, I'm just ask one more question because I want to yield to my colleagues. But um, so, so I, my impression is from you today and others that uh, for the reasons you state, Department of Defense has developed um, capabilities regarding global health security that are quite relevant to, to global security and our security. So um, let me try to bring it back home and ask you to speak in a kind of almost a hypothetical case study way. If, God forbid, the U.S. experienced uh, an infectious disease uh, outbreak here, um, what, what would the DOD role be in uh, responding to it? Well, uh, first, Senator, I'd like to clarify something. So uh, the Department of Defense does not execute uh, any, any programs specifically in support of the global health security agenda. However, uh, programs most, most specifically are, are from our cooperative threat reduction program uh, align with the GHSA goals. And so we, we want to support what GHSA is trying to do, and we are working to support that through our, our biological threat reduction okay. program. I'm, I get it. Um, and, and in answer to your specific question, um, in the event of a pandemic here, uh, the department's role would be, would be as, as with any other uh, national emergency, would be in support of, uh, of uh, civilian authorities. So we would use the Defense Support Civil Authorities process to provide support to HHS or to DHS and potentially to state and local authorities as required. And that would depend on, on uh, when our uh, uh, civilian agencies uh, perhaps exceeded their capacity and needed some help. So uh, the, what kind of assets can you imagine that DOD could bring to bear to help HHS, DHS, state and local authorities? Well, we, we have a, uh, in, in addition to medical support, we obviously have a very large number of doctors and medical personnel right. uh, among the force. But we have, uh, the, the department in uh, 2010 uh, created the Seaburn uh, Response Enterprise. Which is a which is a several tiered levels of capability, starting at the lowest level with the uh, with the WMD civil support teams, which uh, I think some of you may, which was originally created by Congress um, in the early 2000s, and they're, they've grown to this point to I believe there are 57 of them, uh, one in every state and territory, and, and some in uh, some have multiple. Um, all the way up to a uh, uh, multiple thousands of personnel both in, in National Guard personnel supporting uh, un, under the command and control of the governors under Title 32 authority, all the way up to uh, Title 10 forces who are, who are specifically trained and organized to support a uh, CBRN event. Okay, it's very reassuring. Thanks very much. Sir. Senator. Secretary Mar, thank you for your testimony and your good answers to the questions, and most especially for your service to your country. We're fortunate to have you there. I, let me just go back to the National Biodefense Strategy itself. You mentioned uh, in your opening comments that it's been a year since the strategy was, re was, was, was publicly released. Can you give us your best uh, analysis of what, over the course of the last year, we've done 
to specifically implement provisions of the strategy? What, what in particular do you look back on in the first year uh, and, and say with some authority, were it not for that strategy, we wouldn't have done X? So, Senator, I'm, I'm, if I misspoke, I'm sorry. The, uh, the strategy was released on September 18th of last year, so it has, hasn't... Oh, that's been, right. It, it, that's, so it was last so, uh, fall. That's six months right. or so. Um, um, so the, uh, the Biodefense Steering Committee has been created, which is, is that at the Cabinet Secretary level, as directed, uh, uh, the Secretary of HHS chairs that, and they, from that, created the Biodefense Coordination Team, which is, which um, which uh, Secretary Cadlick chairs within within HHS, and that that is where uh, a number of departments and agencies have detailed uh, personnel over to help them with their with the uh, with the assessment effort of collecting the information and designing the metrics. Uh, I understand right now that the that the uh, the, the list of uh, of of metrics that the that the interagency is going to use to assess itself on where we are in our in our global uh, biodefense enterprise is uh, is uh, pending before the approval at the uh, National Security Council uh, the PCC level. And once that's been approved uh, by the PCC, the uh, the list of questions will then go out to the to the uh, to the departments and agencies for their self assessment about exactly where they are. In, in their biodefense enterprise. So what, what's happened in the last six months that hasn't necessarily happened previously is I think that the team's working together right now to, to come up with a way to how are we going to assess ourselves on, on where we are with the, uh, with the national biodefense enterprise and much more frequent meetings in that regard. Congressman Langman uh, mentioned the need for metrics as well. As he uh, appeared before us this morning, you probably heard. Uh, could you just elaborate a little bit on how you describe the value of the metrics and what specifically the metrics are going to be designed to produce? Uh, Senator, I, I don't know what the specific metrics are or, or how they are how they are uh, targeting those. I don't have that off the top of my head. But uh, but in, any metrics are necessary. To, so you know what you what do you want to measure, and so if you are um, if if you are trying to determine, can't think of a good example off the top of my head, but if, if you're trying to determine X and you you use a measure a metric that measures Y, that's not going to help you. So you want to make sure that you that the metrics you're using actually go after the questions you want the answer to, and where, where is the money going? Is the is what's being spent on? Is what's being spent actually addressing our gaps? Is what's being spent actually in support of our broader security? What's the what's the best prioritization for how we spend the money to support the to uh, address those gaps? All of those types of things. I, I, I'm sure you're well aware of our concern for the siloization of so many of the different roles in addressing a national biodefense strategy. We've got Homeland Security and HHS and DOD and intelligence. And, and, and our concern has always been how one integrates the national effort more effectively. And you've, you've certainly uh, addressed many of those concerns with your comments today. One of our recommendations, of course, was to elevate the role uh, of, of the implementation of this strategy to the vice president or somebody with with, with clear authority and convening power. That has not happened to date. Uh, obviously, all of us admire 
Bob Cadlick uh, immensely for what he's been able to do. Are you satisfied that the current organizational structure accommodates this elevated status in a way that allows adequate coordination? So, sir, the strategy in the uh, in, in the implementation plan gave that authority to the HHS secretary, Secretary Azar, and so uh, I think that he that's probably at least in how our government is structured. They he is the right person to to lead this effort. Um, I, I saw it pointed out uh, a while ago that the uh, that uh, the National Security Council is not necessarily the, the right place to do operational things, which is what uh, a lot of what this uh, a lot of what this effort is, is after to try and improve how how we're functioning within the department. So the 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 NSC does does have the oversight over the process through the normal uh, NSPM four process, but uh, but Secretary Azar is the one who has the, the rose pinned on him as far as as far as overall responsibility and I understand that's not the same as, as the vice president but he seems like he's would be there would be pretty uh, pretty expert in uh, in the issues involved so just to drill down if he were to call a meeting of, of people high level people in DoD high level people in national homeland security uh, in addition to HHS uh, would people respond absolutely sir if he calls a meeting of the Biodefense uh, Steering Committee, that would be other cabinet secretaries would likely attend. Has that occurred to date? I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that, sir. Okay. Well, thank you very much, sir. Good morning, or afternoon, I guess it is. Um, so, Apparently, the North Koreans um, have something like 13 suspected mm-hmm. biological um, weapons, to, perhaps agents, I should say. I'm not sure how weaponized they are. But in fact, one of the um, uh, fellows who came across the border had anthrax in his system. I think it was determined. Um, I don't know if you can say this in open form or not, but <clears throat> I'm curious to know to what extent in the talks that are preliminary to another meeting between President Trump and Kim, um, whether the subject of biological capacity is and weaponry is, is on the table at all. Um, and if you can't spe- specifically talk about that, answer that question, at least um, maybe some, shed some light on us as to what the department is doing um, with regard to these concerns. So, sir, I absolutely could not speculate on or comment on what uh, what the president any conversations the president might have had, uh, but uh, the department is is obviously very concerned uh, with uh, with uh, dealing with any potential bio threat from uh, uh, both near peer competitors and and, uh, and rogue nations. As I mentioned, both uh, uh, we've been concerned about North Korea and have had forces on the Korean Peninsula uh, supporting the independence of South Korea. And, and assisting in their defense for literally decades. Um, very, very concerned and, and aware of any potential uh, uh, bio capability that they, that they may have and, and be taking that into account in our defense plans. That's all I have. Good answer, by the way. <laughs> Thank well, you. Well structured. Well done. <laughs> Well, but there again is the Senate training. We <laughs> <laughs> got it. Okay. It's the Senate staff training, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Never worked in the Senate. I feel very deficient. Honesty, thoroughness. 
Um, but you actually are a great representative of the Senate in your current position, so thank you for everything today. Um, just want to follow up on Senator Daschle's questions about the coordination under the structure that's been laid out. And, um, it, you know, we're asking these questions because it's a tough nut to crack how to coordinate all the different players in the executive branch who have an important stake in this, this mission. And um, the strategy has come up with a, a certain construct. And uh, the best thing about that is that you got Bob Cadlick you know, at the coordination level because he's a, he knows more about this than any of us, and he's just a master at getting things done. But still, there's always a concern that um, you really need a lot of heft to get things done in the interagency. And so I guess the question I would have is you described how there is interaction with the White House. You described how Secretary Azar has the authority to convene meetings and the like. But a large part of the, the success here is going to be determined by whether um, this coordination can uh, handle the tough issues like get agencies to cede authority to other agencies, um, you know, try to align budgets and integrate budgets, this kind of thing. So that's a long lead up to, you know, in terms of the NSC, while I get your point that the NSC should not be operational, in terms of keeping momentum behind something, pushing through bureaucratic obstacles and intransigence. Is there somebody at the NSC who's minding this, who's pushing it, who's, you know, reminding the people who are, you know, out in the field of the, the fact that this is a matter of priority to the White House? I get it that putting somebody of Senator Azar's, you know, stature and level uh, on this is important, and it, it sends the message. But the day-to-day, -day, or at least week-to-week, -week, sort of check-in that this is a big issue, are you getting that from the White House? Do you, th you expect to get that? I get it that things are still settling out six months in, but... Uh, sir, I, I I know that the White House is, is very focused on this, and, and uh, my counterpart that I deal with uh, most on the National Security Council is uh, is Tim Morrison, who just came from the HASC mm -hmm. House side. Um, and he's the uh, senior director for, uh, for WMD and, and biodefense, if I have his uh, title correct. Uh, Exactly correct, but uh, it's it's very much a focus of his, and uh, I think um, I know that I know that he does in fact stay engaged on that. I think right now, um, the in, in most instances, I, I would expect that he's he is allowing time to let the process work. So if Fair enough. The, mm -hmm. they're I know they I know they've got some timelines, and uh, I suspect if the uh, process doesn't doesn't meet those uh, gates, that he's probably going to be calling up. His uh, his peers to find out what the issue is, but uh, I know he's focused on it. Good. Okay. Thank you. Just uh, quickly, in the interest of time, um, <coughs> two specific questions. First, thank you for being here, and thank you for um, your testimony. And I echo my colleagues' thanks for your service in multiple branches of government. Um, so, two two questions. Picking up on what uh, Ken was talking about. Um, I also quite agree that the National Security Council does not have a role in operation, uh, operational matters and certainly shouldn't be directing them. But, of course, the National Security Council has two very specific roles, and has, this has been true across administrations, one for policy uh, development and coordination, and, uh, importantly, oversight of policy implementation consistent with um, the president and the national security team's uh, priorities. So uh, just to press once more on this issue, 
from your perspective, and I should say you're doing a great job being the sole representative of all, of all the interagency uh, issues that might arise in this, in this area, what would be the mechanism under the current structure for Secretary Azar, I presume, to settle a particular dispute about a particular priority or uh, issue around uh, a particular goal being implemented under the, under the uh, biodefense strategy. How are those um, issues going to get resolved if, um, you know, for instance, all agencies don't see things um, consistently? So uh, I understand exactly what you're asking, ma'am. Um, the, so I, I believe when the strategy and the implementation plan laid out, it specifically it specifically requires that that the the results of of the uh, secretary Azar's process go through the normal uh, National Security Council NSPM four process. So what if, if Secretary Azar, if it got up to his level and they did not have an answer, I suspect he would take that to a principals committee. And beyond that, obviously, the next step would be to the president. Um, thank you. Do you know has the deputies committee um, met on the national biodefense strategy? The deputies committee, obviously, historically being the main engine of, of policy coordination and implementation. Uh, I, it met, I believe, on the uh, for the for the initial uh, publication of the strategy to to approve the strategy and send it out. Great. And then uh, lastly, you referenced the assessment that is ongoing. What is the timeline? When, when could we expect that to be done and to have a, a settled time, a baseline, rather, for kind of where things are at? Um, I, th- I think, I believe, after the, uh, after the um, HHS issues the, uh, the, the questions for, uh, for um, departments and agencies to answer about, about where they are with their... Uh, with their uh, biodefense programs, um, I, I think the departments and agencies have 60 days mm-hmm. to, to turn that around and answer that. Um, but timelines for the next steps and when uh, when those uh, all that when that assessment can get put together and sent up to uh, sent up to the NSC, I, I don't know that off the top of my head. Thank you very much. My colleagues, Dr. Alexander, uh, may I ask you a question related to the to the proliferation brother issue, for example, are there any of the recent um, movement um, internationally, for example, the UN, the Summerment Committee, and so forth, to revive discussions on WMD uh, free zone idea, for example, uh, in the Middle East, maybe broader, uh, useful or relevant to the broader strategy to combat biological threats. Yeah. Sir, I'm sorry. I understand your, your question is, that is, is anything the UN is doing uh, helpful to the broader strategy um, to combat biological threats? Yes, to uh, discuss uh, this uh, challenge on the broader issue, what can we learn, for example, in regard to uh, chemical threats, or nuclear threats and so on. Well, as you as you're probably aware, um, there's been a lot going on in the in the chemical threat arena um, in the last several years, uh, based on the uh, both the, both Syria and ISIS's use of uh, chemical weapons in, in in the civil war in Syria, and uh, Russia's use of a Novichok against uh, in Britain in Salisbury um, last year. Uh, the 
the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, has, has been very active as a result of that. And the, uh, uh, there, there was initially a, a joint investigative mechanism between the, the, the Chemical Weapons Convention and the United Nations to, um, to attribute uh, some, of the, the, some of those chemical weapons used in Syria. And, and Russia blocked its, um, its uh, renewal, so the, so the joint investigative mechanism uh, was not renewed and was not able to continue to, to investigate chemical weapons use in Syria. And uh, as a result, the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, Conference of State Parties uh, decided to establish its own mechanism for attribution um, of, of weapons use, chemical use. Um, and uh, I understand, uh, I believe, I'm not sure if they're in Syria right now, looking at the at the at the most recent use, or they're getting ready to go. I'm not positive about that, but uh, they do they do have that. So, um, with, with nuclear weapons, uh, the United Nations, and, and for that matter, in counterproliferation, the UN First Committee is, is always uh, is always very concerned and, and focused on uh, on counterproliferation, and uh, that I think that's in October. So just this last October, hence had some uh, member of my office uh, goes up and supports the U.S. delegation uh, every year in regards to that. Um, bi biological weapons is very hard. Um, it's a uh, almost everything involved in it now is dual use, and, and as you know, the uh, uh, the the democratization of the uh, of biological capabilities is uh, expanding the ability of people to use and making it cheaper and more effective so um, or more efficient. Um, so I'm not sure uh, off the top of my head exactly what the UN has done recently or, or it, it's a hard problem for anybody to, to address and I think they're aware of that. Any answer, my colleagues? <clears throat> Dr. Parker. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for your testimony and actually all the hard work you and Chris are doing in the department to make advances on countering weapons of mass destruction. The question is, how well integrated is the advancements you're doing in WMD um, defense with the emerging naturally occurring infectious disease program? And, um, um, and are we ready for a, for a pandemic in DOD from Mother Nature? Um, I, I think the... Defensive-wise, I think the uh, and, and this I think is really more uh, uh, Dr. Hassel's question. But uh, uh, defensively, I think we're most of uh, most of the efforts we have to do are, are and Dr. Hassel can correct me if I get this wrong. Um, but uh, defensively, much of the steps are the same, whether it's uh, naturally occurring or uh, or uh, or maliciously uh, or even accidental. Um, so I, I think many of the steps are involved, but uh, the department is not much. Pandemic influenza is, is, is a problem globally, uh, is a threat globally. And so uh, I know that there are, there are research efforts to, uh, to address that, but uh, how far along they are, I'm not, not positive. Thanks. So I begin. Mr. Secretary, thank you for all you do. Um, these are tough issues, I know, from struggling with them in the past, and this panel has. We've given you a lot of chance to discuss some of the bureaucratic and process <coughs> issues. I wonder if there are particular capabilities that you think we're lacking that we haven't given you, given you a chance to uh, talk about. So if there were an attack a year from now, what are the three or four things you think we would wish we had done? <laughs> 
Um, the last question is always a tough one. <laughs> so uh, certainly open to suggestions along those lines if I, if I forget something. But uh, I, I think what I would ask and what, uh, what both in, in the government but, uh, but also uh, in the private sector, in the, uh, both in the, both this panel as a, as a prime example of that and, and for the members who are currently <coughs> serving the executive branch, is the best thing the best we can do to raise attention to the issue, which I know, which I know is what the purpose behind your panel, and, and to, to see what we can do to address uh, our gaps and capabilities and know what they are. But um, as um, just discussing with uh, with Senator Daschle during the break, the uh, um, sometimes sometimes the uh, what, what gets the most attention from the public is what happened last, and we're we're very fortunate that. Uh, we have not had a, uh, a significant bio event um, in, in this country in, in, in a while, and uh, hopefully we're that uh, that does not change. But uh, to the extent that we can raise awareness and, and provide focus, uh, both in the public and, and throughout the uh, the executive branch in Congress, I think that'll be the most likely to, to be able to help us be best prepared for for a hypothetical attack sometime a year from now. Anything else from my colleagues? Uh, very provocative and very excellent testimony, Derek. Thank you so very much. Well done. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Well done. Uh, we've consumed about uh, 20 minutes of your luncheon time. Uh, so we will be back at 1.15. By the way, there is a, a video that we shown during the lunch period, uh, moderated uh, video with regard to some of the issues we're discussing today. So do you want everybody to bring their... Sure. We invite you to please grab your lunch, take a quick break. In about uh, 15 minutes, we'll go ahead and start that video uh, uh, hosted by Max Brooks, who uh, keeps the panel well engaged with questions. And if you haven't seen it on our website, it is a good video, and I encourage you and welcome you to do that. So 115, be back, please. If you're not going to watch the video, otherwise...
There is a plan, and I think this is important to, to state right here, is after 9-11 there was a failure of imagination. There was a scramble. There was a post-9-11 scramble, just like there was a post-Sputnik scramble, there was a post-Pearl Harbor scramble. Americans tend to get sucker punched relatively easily, and we tend not to see the threat coming. But what you're saying is you have a plan, a detailed blueprint, and if it is put into effect, can actually work. And it is your job to advise the government on how to protect me, the citizen. But Mr. Winston, that would be great if we lived in an autocracy where there was a professional ruling class who just, they did the job of protecting us and me, the peasant, can go back and live my life. But we don't. We, we live in a republic, uh, which depends on taxes and votes. Uh, as a taxpayer, as a voter, uh, I find it difficult to know what my role is. Because after 9-11, I was told that all I was supposed to do, all my government wanted me to do, was pray, hug my kid, and participate in the economy. And that's it. But what if I want to do more? What if I need to do more? What can I do? Two questions. And I, the answer is twofold in terms of what uh, you citizens can do, but also what the government can do. Our blueprint is focused largely on the government, and really, I think one of the central features of that is, as Secretary Justice said, leadership, leadership, leadership. And that leadership is defined in a lot of ways. Well, one definition of leadership is thinking down the road, seeing what is good for the constituency of that leader, i.e. the American people, and explain to the American people why it's good to take that measure. And in a situation like this, where we're looking at a threat that people don't really see as genuine, don't really see as real, um, and I draw parallels from the cyber situation. We were still leading the cyber threat. People didn't see it as being real until these big hacks started coming along and people started losing their, their um, identification, their, their, their credit card credit card. We were behind the curve on that. We didn't show the leadership we needed to meet that threat in advance. We're at the same place here. So I think it's incumbent on the government, all branches, all congressional and executive branches, to make the case to the American people that their tax dollars need to be spent on these uh, on the various measures that we've laid out. And one way of getting that leadership is, as Senator Daschle said, having somebody in the executive branch that's leading the charge on this at a sufficiently high level. We recommended it be in the office of the vice president at a sufficiently high level to mobilize the government, push the government forward, but also to make the case to the American people. And this, to answer your question, is it's incumbent on the government to make the case. We're trying to be an echo chamber to make that case to the American people so that they see that when the next budget or proposed budget has X billion dollars devoted to enhancing the intelligence community's uh, efforts to try to find out where the next uh, bioterror attack's going to come, uh, improve our response capabilities, build up our countermeasure stockpiles, that they will recognize, oh, okay, that's money well spent. And I would hope that there are enough people out there in the, among the American public who recognize that this is a serious threat, that they're willing to make that sacrifice. People most vulnerable to bioterrorism are children and the elderly, because that's who these diseases have a, uh, have a real effect on, um, initially at least, um, we've learned. So uh, the public does have a role. They can communicate with their elected officials that this is absolutely critical for the country's future. 
The business hmm. community has a role. They can send the same message that this has to do with the economy. And, and frankly, our military leaders, um, many of whom know that this is absolutely critical to the work that they're doing, that it's an integral part of the long-term security of not only this country, but really the world. But Max, there's something that should be emphasized as well, and that is that it would be a mistake if we looked at this from a Washington-centric point of view. Mm -hmm. I think it should be emphasized as well. This is a state and local concern as well. Mm -hmm. We need elevated appreciation of the threat and, and plans to address threats at the local and state levels as well. I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of travel for the, 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 the panel, and I've been impressed with some states and the tremendous seriousness with which they take these challenges and this, these issues. And I would just, when you ask the question, what can a, a typical citizen do? It, it should be a call to action at all levels, at the mm -hmm. local level, at the state level, at the federal level. What is our plan? pressing elected officials in particular for a realization that this is serious and we need to consider just what would happen in a case that would involve our community or our state, not just Washington. Yeah, I think that's the key, that the, the public, what's the best thing the citizens can do to, uh, to get ready to, to be prepared for an infectious disease epidemic or a bioterrorist attack? It's to push their leaders in Congress and in the White House to take action, because ultimately the preparedness has to be led by government. We need leadership, and we need a plan, and then we need to implement it. Um, our report that was issued at the end of 2015 and upgraded last year based on what we had learned is a, a very comprehensive series of recommendations. But we're a, we're a, 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 a nonprofit corporation. We're out, we, a lot, we all have experience in government, but we're outside of it now. The, I would say the most significant enactment we've had so far of our recommendations is that at the end of last year, both houses of Congress adopted and the president signed, President Obama, a measure mandating that there be a national biodefense plan written. So we're, we're going to have this now. It's, it's in the law. And uh, then uh, we know from our own investigation pretty much what has to be done. There has to be better detection. We've got to see it when it begins to break out. We still don't have the vast resources of the pharmaceutical industry really willing to invest in medical countermeasures to a disease outbreak because it's not a typical market. You know, it could happen. It might not happen. Who who knows uh, when it's going to happen. And our public health system, including our hospitals, God forbid there's really a pandemic, uh, are not ready to handle it. And we have to work with them now to be prepared for that. And, and as Donna said, uh, it's a win-win all around because ultimately it, it will improve local uh, health uh, uh, so as So as well. a voter, <clears throat> I should basically still be doing what the founders expected me to do since 1776. I should be going to the polls and I should be voting for issues that affect me. So as I understand this, if I read in the paper or I see on the news that there is a biodefense bill working its way through Congress, I should call my representative and I should say, hey, I voted for you. You need to vote for this. Yeah. All right, voting for you next time. Uh, I think that's yeah. in, in part it's, it's true. A good investment in their time. I'm going to just follow on what uh, Senator Dashwell said. I think it's a, although there was a lot of there was a huge tragedy there. Look how well Boston responded. And in, in the midst of that tragedy, why did they respond? Because after 9/11, through a series of 
basically federal and some state and local efforts, they were prepared. There were resources, there were priorities set, and so when in fact it happened, they kept the casualties to minimum. They had the emergency responders, they had the hospitals, they had the police, I mean, they had everybody involved. Point being, you didn't have to imagine it, it happened. Well, in the biodefense area, you don't have to imagine it, it's happened. It was Zika, it was Ebola, it was H1N1. So, all right, we're not talking about an imaginative assault, a germ assault on this country. We're talking about something that could really happen, and we've just got to follow the lessons of others who've identified the possibility and build out that infrastructure. Understand it has national security implications, but as Secretary Shalala said, enormous economic rep uh, repercussions as well. But there's a lesson. Democracies are normally reactive. Here we're saying to our leaders, be preemptive. It's not a matter of imagination. It's happened before. It could scale up, and we're not ready for a scale-up. Now, Governor, on that note, and, and I would like to pose this question to both you and Secretary Shalala, uh, when it comes to me, the voter, uh, we are living in a hyper-partisan age. That, that, that is not hyperbole. That is true. Our, our government is acting like divorced parents, dividing up issues like their furniture in a divorce. Uh, that's a liberal issue. That's a conservative issue. But this affects all of us. Germs don't respect party affiliations. Germs will affect all of us. And therefore, if we're going to come together, it sounds like we are going to have to confront the ideologues on both sides that are trying to tear us apart. Governor Ridge, what would you say to your fellow conservatives who would argue, I don't want to vote for this, this is expensive, this is big government bloat, especially when I've been told since 1980, government is not the solution to our problems, government is the problem. Well, uh, first of all, I would say that I think uh, Republican and Democrat alike uh, want us to be prepared for all eventualities. I don't think Republicans are more interested in providing for the common defense than my friends on the other side of the aisle are. But I would say to my Republican friends, uh, we have long argued, and I embrace that uh, philosophy necessarily, that more isn't necessarily better. Better's better. Mm. And so that necessarily more appropriations doesn't, doesn't always address the problem. What I would say to them, if you're looking for smart government, effective government, outcome-based government, then let's accept the recommendations of this group. There is a national strategy. There is a comprehensive plan to help set priorities and, and, and clearly appropriate in the context of a $600 billion national defense budget. If you believe, as this bipartisan panel believes, that this is a national defense issue, set those priorities, but you're going to find, if you think about it, don't just, it's not just giving more money to the same agencies, it's about giving the right amount of money to the right agencies for the right outcomes to build that biodefense infrastructure. I think that's an argument, I think that's a winning argument. It's about effective outcomes. Now, Secretary Shalala, on the different side of the aisle, what would you say to your fellow liberals who would say that this smells a lot like post 9-11 Bush-Cheney fear-mongering and look where that got us last time and I don't want to vaccinate my kid because I read somewhere on Facebook that that could cause problems. Well, uh, first of all, the first thing I'd say to them is they better vaccinate their kids because <laughs> their kids will be at, at risk and put other children uh, at risk. I agree with Governor Ridge. This is not just a matter of allocating new money. It's how we spend the existing money that we have and whether we spend it strategically. These germs do not know whether they're Republicans or Democrats. In the Constitution, protecting the common good 
this is clearly a federal role. Certainly the strategy is a federal role. And that ought not to be debatable between Republicans or Democrats. This is about making certain that the American people are safe and that they're healthy. And that's a very critical role. Um, it's, it's the best investment we can make for our future. We're anticipating the future. That's what leaders, leaders are supposed to do, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And I agree with, uh, uh, with Governor Ridge that, uh, that spending the money smarter, getting better coordination, having leadership out of the White House will make all the difference uh, for the future for a disease we can't predict at this moment. We talked about the voters and whether the voters should be calling their members of Congress and so forth. And I think to some extent that's true, but realistically they're getting the kids off to school, they're going to work, they're paying their bills, they're taking care of their homes and so forth. But what we're trying to tell the members of Congress is your constituents are not knocking on your door now or calling you and yelling at you, this is my number one issue, because frankly it isn't. But you can be sure of this, when it happens and a bunch of them have died, um, they will be knocking on your door. They will be calling you and they will say, why weren't you ready for this? You had plenty of advice, plenty of reports, and you didn't do the job. I'd like to just add as by way of encouragement in this time of uh, awful partisanship here in Washington, except on this panel. Uh, I saw a poll recently, I forgot where it was from, it was credible. Where it was an interesting question. They asked people, uh, do you think we should rely on the government to solve big national problems or should we leave it to the private sector, to businesses and individuals? And at a time when there's great anti-government feeling in the country, a lot of it for good cause, 60% said the government, we have to count on the government to solve our problems, uh, high 30s said um, individuals and business. And, and I think that's a, that's a kind of bipartisan consensus common sense that when you're dealing with something as big as an infectious disease pandemic or a, or a biological terrorist attack, we have to count on the government uh, to protect us. So it's, it's, it's just like World War II. Yes, the government led the way, but the private industry was the one that built the weapons and it was the average citizen that voted and bought war bonds and put on uniforms and right. did what they had to do. So this, if we take nothing else from this time together, this is a serious threat. This is real. This is happening. Plagues happen all the time, and the next big one will happen, either from nature or from somebody's lab. But it will happen. So we need to wake up, but we also need to calm down. This is not an asteroid hurtling towards Earth. This is not the sun going supernova. This is solvable. We have solved it in the past. We now have a blueprint and the experts to solve it in the future. All we need now is the national will. Thank you all for watching. Thank you for being here.
As we uh, commence our uh, two panel discussions this afternoon, uh, we've got uh, four expert witnesses to give us some perspective and insight that, uh, for which the panel is particularly grateful. But the first panel this afternoon is about DOD biodefense science, technology, research, and development. And uh, our distinguished panelists include uh, Dr. Christian Hassel, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Chemical and Biological Defense, Department of Defense. And before that, he had the uh, challenge of being the director of the FBI Investigation Laboratory. Welcome, Chris. Thank you to have you here. And his colleague that will join us as well is uh, Dr. Justin Sanchez, Director of uh, Biological Technologies Office, DARPA. So we're grateful to have your presence here as well. Thank you for having me. I will uh, let you choose, flip a coin, who goes first. Chris, you want to start off? Okay, sure, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Dr. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Governor Ridge and Senator Lieberman and uh, to the whole panel. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and uh, describe what we're doing in the program. You want to get that mic closer? Good. Okay. So as was, is this, is this here? can you hear me? Good. Okay, as was discussed by uh, Dazdy Maurer, as he assigned many of his answers to me, um, <laughs> uh, he talked about the Department of Defense having issued a new uh, national defense strategy last year. So I'd like to first describe how the chemical and biological defense program uh, fits into that. Now, I, I have to admit, I'm a big fan of this new uh, national defense strategy. And one key piece of it is it easily and succinctly fits on a single piece of paper. So... One problem with strategies is they, they, they look good while people develop them, but they go on a shelf. So I, I, I like the fact that this is uh, one that everybody can uh, get behind. Uh, there's three objectives or lines of effort as they're referred to. So I'll address these in turn as they relate to research, development, and acquisition of technology for chemical and biological defense. The first line of effort is to build a more lethal force. Now, first, it may sound odd to talk about lethality in the context of a chemical and biological defense program. So for the record, let me state clearly and without exception, the Department of Defense does not have an offensive chemical and biological weapons program. Uh, again, I represent the, the ChemBio defense program, which also includes radiological. We just haven't formally changed the name yet, but it does include RAD as well. <clears throat> So having said that, the program has an important role in ensuring the lethality of our fight fighting forces. And that is, those forces, and uh, Dasty Maurer made this point too, they must survive and fight in an environment that may be contaminated with chemical or biological weapons agents. So that survive to fight is a key, di key distinguishing factor here. Um, and our program provides the equipment and the systems that those warfighters need to survive these situations, carry out their mission, and this includes detection and diagnostic systems, protective suits, gloves and masks, vaccines and therapeutic drugs, and decontamination systems. And then the associated information systems that uh, tie many of these things together. Other DOD programs provide uh, technology solutions for other related areas such as counterproliferation and weapons elimination, uh, but we're closely partnered. Now, a challenge for this particular line of effort is balancing preparedness and modernization. Uh, this is really no different than any, uh, you know, even in the, when I was, uh, spent 10 years in the chemical manufacturing field earlier in my career. 
we had the cha same challenge there. We had to make sure that we were developing and building our manufacturing capability, but they were also maintaining our research and development arm. So similarly here, we have this dual um, responsibility to, to assure preparedness, but ensure that we're modernizing, that we're bringing innovation uh, into, the, into the whole system, and we're better prepared for the future. This, um, the, you know, the, the, these lines of efforts also crosswalk very well with the National Biodefense Strategy. I'm focusing mostly here today on the National Defense Strategy. But, for example, this one line of effort is where we tie in the NBS aspects of prevent, prepare, respond, and recover, as Dazdy Mauer talked about earlier. So the second line of effort is to strengthen alliances and attract new partners. Now here we work deeply and broadly with our international allies. In most cases, these are very effective collaborations for which we can demonstrate a business advantage. Uh, that is, we can have quicker time to implementation uh, or other ways, other metrics we might have for return on investment in addition to just the goodwill of the international collaboration. Likewise, we collaborate right across the U.S. government in similarly cost-beneficial relationships. Examples here include working with all elements of HHS, that is NIH, FDA, CDC, and others for medical countermeasure development, as vaccines, therapeutic drugs, and diagnostic systems. We work with DHS for detection and protection systems. And we work with DHS and EPA together on decontamination systems. Uh, finally, we work with Department of Justice elements, uh, for example, FBI and DEA, for first responder-related technology. We further have multinational multi-agency interactions. And so two examples here, we've worked along with HHS, Canadian Department of Defense, and Public Health Canada on <laughs> Ebola therapeutics. So it was a four-way collaboration across departments and nations. Similarly, we worked with DHS, uh, and then along with the UK Ministry of Defense and the UK Home Office on fentanyl-related matters for the chemical side. So speaking personally, having served in several U.S. government departments, I'm, I'm very passionate about interagency cooperation and collaboration. And that passion, I have to say, is generally shared among my counterparts. Um, I'm very proud of that collective spirit. Uh, and more importantly, I'm proud of the end results that do accrue from that. And I know that's a lot of questions here for this panel, so I'd be happy to answer more detail of this in addition to what I'm going to present this morning, or th this afternoon. Um, despite how, you know, how well, I think it's working. I do believe that the National Biodefense Strategy uh, can help us go further and will help us to demonstrate the strength of those collaborations. But at the same time, I need to stress that each of our respective departments have different requirements, and these differ to varying degrees. So I says, as I said at the beginning, uh, the Chem Biodefense mission is to protect to fight. Survival alone isn't enough. Likewise, the FBI has unique requirements to collect intelligence and to preserve and analyze evidence, all for the purpose of attribution and ultimately prosecution. And if you permit me a couple of other examples, DOD systems are generally engineered so that training can occur quickly to accommodate the high turnover of active duty warfighters. Uh, that higher turnover is, is higher compared to the civilian <coughs> sector, where you may have more long-term um, uh, civilian operators of the equipment. Likewise, we develop medical countermeasures for a relatively young, smaller, uh, healthy population than, the, than the, the population at large, 
And as I, as I repeat several times, we protect that population so, so that they can continue their mission. Whereas HHS has a much broader remit for uh, all of the population size and demographics. <coughs> now, I'm not saying that this mission divergence is, is never an excuse for not sharing information. So again, I know this has been uh, raised as a concern, and uh, I, I do want to do whatever we can to, to address that. And I welcome any examples that the panel or others may have where we're not sharing information, or more importantly, not sharing technology, because uh, we do either need to dispel that misunderstanding, or if, it, if we do have examples of that, I can speak for my other department counterparts, we want to fix it. So. Again, to, to summarize, you know, we do work together. We enjoy working together. Um, many of us spend time in formal meetings and informal meetings together. Most of us in senior leadership have spent time uh, working in each other's departments. And one thing I'm seeing more and more is this is true of younger staff as well. I think behind me there are many people from other departments who, who can point to other departments that they themselves worked in as well. So this cross-fertilization is, is occurring much more. So let me turn to the, uh, the third line of effort is reforming the department. Uh, a lot has been written the last few years about the challenges of the federal acquisition regulation. Um, this is the, the, our process for acquisition and uh, procurement. While this system can, when it's properly executed, result in rock-solid systems that are second to none, the cost is high both in funds and in time. Uh, this is a particular challenge where we're trying to stay abreast of the speed of innovation. Currently, DOD leadership is very actively leading change to make the system more responsive and flexible. Uh, we're even encouraged at times to try to be, quote, creatively compliant. So this is trying to infuse throughout the culture of the department to try to lean forward and do more. Uh, several alternative acquisition mechanisms are now in increasing use. And again, they're being uh, strongly advocated, for example, by the current undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment. Uh, Ms. Ellen Lord makes a very strong, uh, constant push that we explore other ways of doing business that are more efficient. Two examples are middle-tier acquisition, and the other one is called Other Transaction Authority, uh, or OTA. The goal with both of these is to better match commercial industry standards for technology development. The Chem Biodefense Program has led in both of these areas. We started development of the Army's first middle-tier acquisition product, which was a medical countermeasure. And we have established two other transactional agreements, or OTAs, one for medical, and the other one for more broadly addressing countering WMD. Now, these OTAs are basically industrial consortia uh, that are centrally managed to distribute awards, uh, in our case, for prototype development. Uh, and there's an emphasis on non-traditional performers, new performers, small businesses, and also, the member companies do not need to possess all of the required um, government overhead infrastructure, all of the accounting systems and the, the things that are very onerous and present, prevent people from really being attracted to working for the government. This is meant to uh, mitigate the, to a large degree. Uh, the Countering WMD OTA has, currently has 253 industrial members, and it was created such that DOD components abroad, not just within our program, but any other program within the department could use that mechanism. Uh, so such missions as counterproliferation, elimination, like I mentioned earlier. A key aspect of this, though, is we created this so that any other department could use this. Because the other departments are also bound by the same 
federal acquisition uh, regulations as well. So to date, DHS has issued two solicitations through this OTA. So this is somewhat nascent, but we're excited about what this can really bring um, to really helping us speed the, the development of innovation. And this is going to be increasingly important if we're going to keep up with emerging threats. So let me, let me turn to that for a moment. For biodefense, we've long focused on a list, a specific list of threat agents uh, known as the Biological Select Agent and Toxins List, the BSAT. So this, combined with intelligence regarding our adversaries, has led us to focus largely on a set of specific agents. Um, but we've known for many years that organisms could be genetically modified. Again, this goes back several decades. Uh, and thus, we've long tried to pursue uh, solutions that could address these potential new threats. Um, sometimes you hear the term threat agnostic, but these are broad-based solutions that we might use. Two examples, uh, using a flexible pharmaceutical platform technology. This is kind of a warm start capability to have it ready to quickly produce uh, new therapeutics and vaccines um, if we get a, an emerging biological threat, for example, something we weren't expecting. And by the way, this, this is both for things that might be intentionally used as well as uh, things that might come uh, just naturally occurring. So we do definitely deal with that here as well. Uh, other technologies we looked at is uh, more emphasis on, on fieldable genetic sequencing. Again, this is a, a tool that we can use more broadly to determine what we're coming up against. That, that's just a couple of examples. But we're now in the midst of an incredible period of engineering biology advancements, and this includes the area of synthetic biology, which was mentioned a couple times earlier. As, as you probably know, techniques like CRISPR have been on the, the front pages of a major newspaper. Um, so one positive aspect of this is our program is actively engaging using these new techniques to help us develop solutions faster. So I mentioned those platform technologies earlier. The key to making those work are some of these new synthetic biology techniques that we can use to more quickly re-engineer those platforms to produce a new medical countermeasure. Now, as, as we said, and the, you know, there's a lot of, it of promise to this, but there's also a potential peril uh, in that these techniques could be used by adversaries to produce new and more dangerous pathogens. And possibly more rapidly, and without the same degree of expertise needed for more classical genetic modification techniques. I say possibly because there's a wide spectrum of opinion right now uh, regarding the true nature of the threat posed by synthetic biology. So to help determine the degree of peril and what we might do to mitigate it, uh, I've devoted much of my time, for example, over the last couple of years, and those are my entire team, uh, working with academia and the, acad and the industrial sectors. And that has led to uh, our sponsorship of the National Academy of Sciences consensus study on synthetic biology. Uh, I brought a copy today. Uh, this is available to download, and I'll, I'll make sure you have a, um, the, the website to download that. And there's a four-page summary that I've uh, provided so that everyone can have that to, uh, to take away a hard copy. Um, I should say that we sponsored this, this study, but we involved the interagency, and especially the intelligence community, from the beginning, from even the, the initial kickoff or the concept meetings that we had with the Academy representatives. We included the interagency because I wanted this to be not only a consensus from the technical community, but a consensus product that the government offices and departments could use. 
Now, the report's overarching recommendation is, quote, biotechnology in the age of synthetic biology expands the landscape of potential defense concerns. The DOD and its partnering agencies should continue to pursue ongoing strategies for chemical and biological defense. These strategies remain relevant in the age of synthetic biology. DOD and its partners also need to have approaches to account for the broader capabilities enabled by synthetic biology now and into the future. So to boil that down, it, it validates the current approach we're using, but it, it says we shouldn't just rest on that. that we, there's more that we should be doing. So we're now incorporating the other recommendations in the report into our overall plan and strategy. And again, I'm, we're doing this with our interagency partners. Uh, you know, Bob Caddick's name has been mentioned uh, many times. He and I were on the phone last night about this and a couple of other topics. We are working on this together. Um, one example of an approach we're using to address this, uh, and again, to harness both, sorry, 